Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is a solo episode, a long solo episode, on a single question. When were the Gospels written? It's something, for whatever reason, I've been playing over and over again in my head recently. And this comes on the tail end of me taking... So one of the things I do is I take various courses online. Um, you can just take for free. There's the reading materials and, you know, YouTube videos of the lectures. All sorts of different things. Um, I've been taking um, a bunch of these on historical approaches to the Bible. Um, that's how I encountered Joel Baden, for instance, as I'm um, trying to run through the Old Testament, and I did. He's got some courses online. I did those. Um, it's how I found Dale Martin, and I've done a bunch more since then. And for whatever reason, just the various arguments about this have been kind of on a bit of a circle in my brain, and I was kind of stuck, I won't lie, on what anyone wanted to do a solo episode, but on what the political news recently has been a bit all over the place and quite upsetting, frankly. Um, but when I tried to write something about it, it just wasn't very good, frankly. I wasn't happy with it. It was just sort of me venting and being angry, and I wasn't... There's a place for that. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll certainly have seen me vent a bit about it. But I think for, like, a long-format show you want to try and say something or do something that hasn't been said before, or at least take something and present it in a new way. And that's what I've tried to do here. This is a real in-depth dive on a very simple question. And at the end, I have offer some reflection on what I think that dive can tell us. What can we gain from really going into a question like this? And finally, what do I think is... Why have I found this so interesting? I am, and I've always said when I comment on, on religion, not religious. And at the same time, I'm talking a lot about it, not for the purpose of dunking on it or debunking it, but just like being interested in it. Why? And if you'd have asked me even a, few, a couple of years back, I don't think I'd have really had an answer. It's an answer I've come to through engagement with the traditions and just sort of being interested in them and enjoying them and I end I end with 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 that reflection um I don't know what you'll make of this one please do give me your feedback there's various times in this episode where I just sort of say here's the evidence what do you think I would love to hear from you when I do those moments um it's almost like I'm being a, a, a sort of bit of a pretentious professor, which I'm not, and saying, oh, no, no, what do you think here? Let's get, the, let's get the class involved for some audience discussion. But I'd really love to see I, if you come to the sort of conclusions I think you'll do when I do those points. And just as I mentioned on being a professor, it obviously goes to stand that I'm not. I'm an interested amateur and you know, take everything I have to say in that light. I try to cite as I go in this one. So, like, if you want more information on stuff, you can follow up on it. And when it comes to, like, historical criticism of the New Testament, there is a wealth of really, really good resources online 
So I'd encourage you to check that out. Won't go into more than that. I set up the question and I set up the challenge in the episode itself, so let's get straight to it. Apart from to say, if you enjoy this sort of content, please do consider um, sponsoring me on Patreon. That's always very much appreciated, and I don't do commercial advertisements, so all the costs associated with the show, like web uh, website hosting, stuff like that, all covered by um, all of y'all which is super appreciated, and people who do that, you are awesome. Please also do share this episode, and please, please, please do tell me what you think, even if it's um, uh, critical. Um, what were... If you, if you get through all of this, um, like, do, do tell me what you make of it at, at the end. I'd, I'd love to hear it, even if it's like, well, I'm not sure about that bit, you know? Um, let's get straight to it. This is an extended long-form solo episode on dating the Gospels. One of the things you'll encounter if you follow any of the sorts of public debates about religion is various claims and counterclaims about when the Gospels were written. Almost every work in New Atheism or something like that will have, not as a central argument, but it'll be in there somewhere, they'll sort of say, the Gospels were not written by eyewitnesses. They were written generations and generations after by non-eyewitnesses who were just sort of making it up, basically. What they're attacking there is the traditional apologist view. Apologist, just a designator here, not a pejorative, um, of Gospel composition, which is that these are the disciples of Jesus, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the canonical Gospels, were people who knew him during his lifetime, they preached his message after his death, and then a bit later on, maybe towards the end of their lives, they all wrote biographies, essentially, of, of his life. Um, so they're diff they tell the same stories, but in different ways. So if you're not super familiar with the New Testament, we have four canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the first four books of the New Testament, in the order it appears in, in almost every Bible. And they kind of cover a lot of the same ground, but they're, they're different. They, they Some have bits that others don't. They some tell the stories in slightly different ways. There's some stuff that's in some of the Gospels and not in others, so on and so forth. And... Again, the traditional apologist view, which is sort of, to be fair, what I was raised with when, you know, I wasn't, I'm not religious, but in the UK, we're, we're given religious instruction in schools, and, <laughs> by the way, a, a more surefire way of producing atheists has never been devised other than religious education in the British system. <laughs> I think a thousand Richard Dawkins books probably wouldn't be as successful in secularising a generation 
as um, <laughs> just how inept our religious instruction was, but that's a complete aside. But yeah, what I was sort of raised with is when, you know, we read the Bible in assemblies and so on, would be sort of like there's four witnesses to a car accident, and a bit later on they all tell their stories, and they're a bit different, but they're all they're all remembering the same thing. That's that's like I say, the traditional apologist view. And one of the big claims people make when they want to attack religion is they say, well, that's bogus. These are non-eyewitness accounts written much, much, much later on. And then they'll go further and start making claims like, actually, it's not even as if they, they were preserving a history. These are propaganda documents, essentially. And... <laughs> and what all they're doing is they're writing a character to conform to various sort of tropes that were around in the time and fulfil various prophecies from earlier scripture. That sort of more aggressive claim, by the way, that the Gospels aren't just written later, but they're basically invented, um, that gets called the mythicist view, for obvious reasons, is that, that these are just myths, right? Um, so, for instance, if you watch Bill Maher's silly film Religious, which is sort of just a, a roasting of religion, essentially, um, he has this long montage, pretty ahistorical montage, but that's beside the point, of, like, various similarities between um, Jesus and some of the Egyptian gods, Osiris, I think it is, with, with the clear implication um, that... Jesus was just invented. So that's a, um, a a sort of modern new media example of a mythicist position. Now, this debate between... And it's not the centre of the debate, but it always sort of ends up coming into it on this point between, let's just say, apologists and mythicists, is, I think, like a lot of the debates around religion that happened in the New Atheist Era, and then sort of faded away as that movement collapsed into internet reactionarism, um, is neither interesting or consequential. It's not particularly interesting, because, like I say, the, the, these are just various shots being fired back and forth for rhetorical point scoring. No one ever really goes into trying to evidence them, at least not within that debate. They do, in, they definitely do in scholarship. Um, but it's also, like, it feels very consequential, but I don't think it is at all. Because what's at stake here is authority, right? Is, is sort of the accuracy of the text. Christians, particularly sort of literalist Christians, fundamentalist Christians, want to push the dating earlier because that would seem to make it more reliable, right? And sceptics of religion, critics of religion, want to push the dating later because that calls into question its authenticity. But so it seems like there's quite a lot on the line, right? But actually, when you think about it, something being contemporaneous doesn't mean it's accurate. 
like, an eyewitness can lie and make stuff up, and someone writing a hundred years later might have very good written sources and documentation, right? So all of the histories we have of Alexander the Great are, like, 300 years after the fact, and I don't think anyone thinks the Gospels are that much later. There's some people who might put them 100, 150 years later, but no one thinks they're 300 years later. Um, but we do think that the, the histories of Alexander contain, certainly that they're not inerrant, but they contain a good amount of historical truth, because we do know that the historians who wrote them had access to sources now lost, which were much more contemporaneous. Um, so actually, the, the time of writing, it, it would factor into your assessment of historical reliability. It's something you take into account, but it doesn't prove in and of itself that it's either made up or not. And also, I just sort of think, like, it wouldn't... Even if you could really conclusively demonstrate this, and we can't, by the way, that's the essential punchline to this this that I'm going to give away in advance. It wouldn't it wouldn't change anyone's mind, would it? Like, because look at this from the Christian point of view, and let's say you know try to put yourself in the shoes of a biblical literalist here. This is the word of God, or the inspired word of God. Well, God can inspire people whenever He wants, right? One assumes. So God might inspire immediate eyewitnesses to write something that sort of reflects his views, as it were, at the time. But he might inspire someone completely separated from the events and just put the words in their mouth with with the the gospel writer in this case being sort of like a a divine scribe, you know, a divine note taker within the framework of, of a sort of biblical literalism. Both of those are perfectly coherent views. Um, and, you know, by the same token, you know, like I say, I don't think it's necessarily a problem for biblical literalism if they were 300 years later. Not really, if, if, if God was just speaking through them, right? At the same time, would anyone stop being an atheist? if it could really be conclusively proven that these were eyewitnesses. Well, we have a bunch of eyewitnesses to the founding of Mormonism, which is sort of more recent and, like, it's much more historically recoverable. Um, Joseph Smith claimed to... What did Joseph Smith claim? To have found gold plates with the words of God in, on them in upstate New York. Something like that, right? I don't mean to sound dismissive of it, I think that's the story. Um, that's, you know, we have a bunch of eyewitnesses to that. Like, what actually went down isn't really in dispute. That We don't all suddenly become Mormons because we have eyewitnesses to it, right? So, like, I think it's not... I don't think it's the most likely explanation, and I'll give you... Yeah, we'll get into this, right? But, like... It's not inconceivable that these were eyewitnesses. Like, it's not... If that actually turned out to be the case, I think it would be a bit surprising. But, like, not utterly wild. But then... So what? And so, ultimately, I don't... I think, like I say, this is just rhetorical point scoring. And it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. 
And I could give you my answer, right? What's my answer? Who's right? Mythicists or apologists? I'm pretty sure they're both wrong. Or at least the positions as I've presented them are not the best overall explanation for the evidence that we have. And what could I appeal to for that? I could say something dry and boring, like, that's what the majority of historical scholars who study this think. Alright, there you go. I set up a really boring question, and I gave you a really boring answer. Alright, cool. Should we call that episode done, then? That was fucking fascinating, wasn't it? Okay. But what about if you actually just wanted to think about this? And here's, I think, a more interesting question. Let's not start with the conclusion, because in the debate I've just outlined, everyone started with the conclusion. And even, you know, professional scholarship on this is is much better, of course, and, like, much more serious than the types of debates and positions I've just outlined. But even then, they can do the same thing, where you'll listen to a lecture, or you'll read something, and this sort of gets covered in passing, And it'll go, I date X gospel to Y time period. And sort of like, here's why I think that is. So the the fact that reasons are being given automatically puts it ahead. But it sort of starts with the conclusion. And a lot of the sort of, like, theses, I never know what the right plural of that is. Um, A lot of the theses around you know, findings in New Testament textual criticism will often sort of start like that. We believe there is this hypothetical document called Q. It starts with the conclusion. What if you flip, what if you start with the problem, and instead of asking, start asking what's the answer, I will eventually give you my answer, um, but you ask, well, how would you know? Like, what would count as evidence for a gospel being written in a particular time period. Because here's the problem. Nowhere in any of the four canonical gospels do they say anything about what date they were written. None of them do. Because it, it, I mean, it's not like, you know, modern scholarship where you get a book and there's like on the Inside of the front cover, there's like, this was, you know, published by Oxford University Press, first edition, 97, second edition, 2001. There's none of that. But even in the ancient world, you will sort of get a, this is being, you know, written in the 17th year of so-and-so's reign, or if you're in ancient Greece, the, the they, they date it by, like, the Olympic Games or something. Romans date it by what what consul was in power that year, which is which is a massive headache for historians to piece together. Um because obviously we don't have A D or B C yet or B C E, right? Um because the the thing that we're going to use as our dating system has only just happened. But you do tend to get that or, you know, you'll have another document that refers to the writing of a thing. Gospels really are absolutely silent on that point. So how, but how would you know then? We've got all these people saying, well, it was this, it was this, it was this. Why? Now that, I think, is a really, really interesting question. And that's what this episode is going to be about. 
what's the methodology here? What's the epistemology here? What makes us think we could know something about this? So, what I'm going to try and do here, and it's quite ambitious, I haven't seen anything quite like this, which is why I wanted to give it a go. Um, and, you know, due fair warning, I'm not a specialist in this. I don't read the texts in the original language. I probably know at this point a few hundred words in, like, Koine Greek, um, because you kind of have to know certain words to sort of follow the arguments. Um, but, you know, I've, I've literally done courses on this that you can do online for free, and they're fantastic. Um, and I've interviewed people on it and so on, and I'm, I'm going to take it on. It's ambitious and maybe a bit beyond my scope. But what I'm going to try and do is instead of giving you a conclusion, I'm going to say these are the types of reasons people have speculated that particular Gospels might have been written around a particular time. The reasons, all of them, are internal to the documents themselves. Even though none of the Gospels, as I've been stressing, explicitly tell us when they were written, there's nonetheless, if you do, like, a close reading of them, there's a lot of, like, context clues. There's a lot of stuff that provides a pretty strong hint that it, it must have been a bit after this, or before this, or, like, around about this time. And... There's no one, really, that's definitive, but when you put them all together, I think what you get is a sort of profile of an answer. And I think that process is absolutely fascinating, and I'm going to walk you through it. Um, and I think as we do, you'll see a number of quite interesting points about epistemology, essentially, sort of fall out along the way. Um, but what I'm not going to do is really try and convince you of anything. I'm going to give you the bits of these texts that people use, that people think have clues in them, but I'm not going to give it as like, well, here's X and that proves Y. I'm going to try and just show you these are the sorts of ways historians will try and date documents. Here's sort of the principle they use. And here's some bits of evidence. And a lot of time I'll just sort of leave it at that and say, well, what what would you do with that? What do you think that means? By the end of this, my hope is you have an understanding of all of the, the, the sort of different little nuggets and clues in the texts themselves that might date them one way or the other and that you could make your own argument from them. And I think there is a range of plausible answers here. There's quite a big range of plausible answers. And there is stuff like this, and I'm going to cite stuff as I go, and a lot of the stuff I cite are other lectures and talks that are available online. I haven't seen it... There must be something. I haven't seen it all brought together in one place. There's like maybe a great talk that covers the synoptic problem say, or the Q hypothesis say. I'm going to try and do it all, so it's going to be a long episode, um, but hopefully you'll get a much richer picture of this, and as we work through it, you'll, I did certainly, begin to construct in your head kind of a story about, like, 
what the first few generations of Christianity looked like that's kind of just really interesting, whether you happen to believe in it or not. And I'm going to try and do this episode so that it's interesting to everyone. I'm not pitching this to atheists and I'm not pitching this to Christians. I'm thinking about this from the point of view of history. I'm treating it almost like, say, say a lost work of Aristotle turned up, right? What would historians do with that to try and work out if it was authentic, if it was really written by Aristotle, and if it was, you know, when in his life it was written? That. That's how I'm thinking about it. And although it's a very challenging topic and question, I don't think I need to assume any prior knowledge here. And I'm not going to go through any sort of argument that I think is really, at the end of the day, that difficult to follow. Like I say, there's no one argument that's conclusive here. What you have is a bunch of different stuff. Any individual argument that can really sort of be understood quite easily by a non-specialist, for the most part. And then you've just got to sort of hold them all in your head together and say, okay, where do I land here? So let's start at the beginning, and let me try and set up the the sort of scale of the problem here. Like I said, we don't know when these documents were written just on the basis of the documents themselves, at least at a first pass. Presumably, they had to be after Jesus' death, And let's just pause it for a minute as conjecture rather than proven fact that there was a historical Jesus and he died around the year 30. Now, obviously already the mythicist denies that, but let's just just put that in as a blocker. So, presumably after that. And then, what if it's not in the texts themselves... When do, when do we get the first reference to this in something else? In, in sources external to Christianity, it's going to be a long time. We do get some references to Christianity turning up, I think, like, late first century, but they, they don't mention the Gospels, right? So they could have been written later. The, 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 but even within the first Christian tradition... We're like 130 years out. I think the first one is Justin Martyr, um, who makes reference to them and clearly has knowledge of at least Mark, because he quotes from it. And he references a category of documents which he calls, seemingly using the words uh, um, synonymously, either Memoirs of the Apostles, or the Gospels. Um, in two books, his first apology in um, AD 155 and Dialogue with Trifo 160. Okay, so that's maybe like your end point. They, they, that's like the latest they could have been written. But there's there's not much in there that speaks to when they were written. Was this ten years before? Or was this a hundred years before? Well, 
If you're an apologist, you can zero in on memoirs of the apostles, which that would seem to speak to the apologist view. That this is like, yeah, literally memoirs, something the apostles have written. Um, the word gospels, the Greek here is evangelium. Evan my pronunciation here is going to be horrible. But it literally just means good news, which is still a phrase that has a, a, does a lot of work and has a lot of resonance in Christianity today. Let me, you know, let me tell you about the good news of Jesus. So the word just means good news. And when you zero in on what the, the exact Greek word that he's using, um, a, a lot of people have argued that actually... It's more like remembrances of the apostles, i.e. documents that preserve things that were passed on to us by the apostles, but aren't necessarily by them. And that matches the earliest account of gospel composition we have, which is in Papias. Papias we don't have in his own words, but we get him quoted by someone else a bit later on, and this is the story he gives, um, quoting Papias being quoted by someone else. Um, quote, The elder used to say, Mark, in his capacity as Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately as many things he recalled from memory, although not in ordered form of the things either said or done by the Lord. For he neither heard the Lord nor accompanied him, but later, as I said, Peter, who used to give his teachings in the form of Korikai, had no intention of providing an ordered arrangement of all the logia of the Lord. Consequently, Mark did nothing wrong when he wrote down some individual items, just as he related them from memory, for he made it his only concern to not omit anything he had heard or to falsify anything, end quote. So there we have an origin story for Mark. And then there's another excerpt relating to the authorship of Matthew that says, quote, Therefore Matthew put in the logia in an ordered arrangement in the Hebrew language, but each person interpreted them as best he could, end quote. And that, that's the entirety of that passage. So I actually don't think... So what's being described there? What's being described is Peter, one of the people who knew Jesus, is travelling around teaching, and someone working with him, who wasn't an eyewitness, who's a translator apparently for him, sometime afterwards writes down various sayings of Jesus, but not in any particular order. And then later on, some guy called Matthew orders them and produces like a sort of a full document of them. Right? That's, that's sort of roughly the story. Now, I actually don't think, and we'll get back to this, I don't think something like that is a totally implausible account of how the Gospels came to be. Something like that could very well have happened, but this is this is being written a hundred years or more later, 
So this isn't someone who knew the people he's talking about. He's, he's reciting a tradition that he's heard. Is it true? Could well be. But the documents he's describing here are, whatever they are, they're not the Gospels of Mark and Matthew that we have now. Whatever they are, they're not that. How do we know? Because what he describes as Mark is a sayings gospel. A sayings gospel, by the way, is just is exactly what it sounds like. It's instead of like a narrative, it's just like a list of quotes. And we do have a sayings gospel, the Gospel of Thomas, which isn't in the Bible, but it might date to a sort of similar early-ish period. And the Gospel of Thomas, it's quite short if you read it, it just begins, these are the sayings that the living Jesus spoke, and then there's like a hundred and some, just like quotes out of context. It's sort of describing something like that, which isn't what Mark is. Mark is a narrative gospel that's in a recognisable chronological order. So what he's describing as Mark, he might be describing a real document here, but we don't have it anymore. And what he's describing as Matthew can't be Matthew, because Matthew also isn't a sayings gospel, and Matthew wasn't written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek. So those are our earliest mentions of the gospels in other sources, and that kind of sets up the scale of the challenge here, right? What can we summarise from that? I'd say probably fair, fairly minimal. What we can tell from that is by the middle of the second century, by you know, 150, 160 AD, there were documents in circulation that were known by the name of gospel. They were known as good news, literally. Um, and we, we know from Justin Martyr that these were read aloud in churches. Churches at this time wouldn't be like physical buildings. Um, they would be more just like prayer groups, essentially, like meeting in people's houses or public areas. The Greek word for that gets translated as church in almost every translation that you'll read, um, what, what it actually means is like assembly. Um, so I'm going to do this a lot, by the way. You don't need to remember any of them. But I'm just going to be pointing out as we go through that a lot of the time the Greek word for something doesn't really mean what the English word that it's translated as means. Um, and that's going to be just kind of important for the various stuff I cover, but it's not like you need to remember the Greek words or anything. Um, so in these assemblies that are happening all over the Eastern Mediterranean by this point, as well as possibly in the Middle East. Um, you have documents that are known as good news that are being read aloud and that have some currency in circulation and traction, right? Um, and there's sort of various stories about where they might have come from. People are beginning to sort of say, oh, well, it might have been this or it might have been that, and they're, they're, in, they're passing on various stuff that presumably was passed on to them. Um, but those stories don't really line up with the documents that we have. Um, 
So what what can we know from that? All, all I really say is that's like y- your end point for, for your dating. Like, unless you want to do like a real historical conspiracy theory, they must have been written, I don't know what, like, let's say 10 years absolute latest before Justin Martyr makes reference to them. So 140, 145 CE or AD, depending on which one you go with, that's like your absolute latest. And I'm not sure you can really dig that much more out of those fragments. So that just brings us straight back to the texts themselves. So we have an enormous problem here. If Again, we're approaching this not from the point of view of I want to prove that these were eyewitnesses or I want to prove that these were later fabrications. If we're approaching it from the point of view of, okay, every drawer in almost every hotel in the world has a book in it. The first four bits of that book are some of the most important and consequential documents ever written. Billions organise their lives around them. Some fraction of them believe these are the literal utterances of the creator of the universe. And even those of us who don't believe that have to acknowledge that our entire history and society has been irreparably shaped by them. It's impossible to imagine an alternate history where Christianity doesn't happen. Which, from a historical point of view, it may very well not have. In the period we're talking about, this this creed, religion's probably an anachronism, but this sort of religious set of organisations may have only had a few people, a few hundred people in it. Not guaranteed that it survives. But these are some of the most consequential documents in human history, and we have absolutely no direct evidence of who wrote them or when. That's the scale of the problem here. (laughs) Um, That's the challenge ahead of us, right? Um, And that's such, like, a cool problem to be given. Right? Like, I think the problem is more interesting than the answers. What we can say is it does seem like we can know that they were in circulation by, like, around 150 AD. And presumably they must have been written after the events that they, they're describing. Even if you think it's all made up, presumably they had to be, like, written after the events that they were making up, right? Um, And while I said that there's not... I don't... I'm not sure there's a, a, a like, payoff in terms of people either converting to Christianity or deconverting to atheism. I don't think that debate will do that. It still has a huge consequence if we're approaching it as history. When and where and why these documents were created will be massively important for what we think about the question of the historical Jesus, right? Now, like I say, that that they're later doesn't necessarily mean that they're all made up, and that they're earlier doesn't mean that they're all reliable, but still, that that, that will be information that will be hugely useful to you if you're going to try and dig through and work out what is historical and what isn't, 
right? That's information you're going to want to have. Um, and we've got almost nothing. All we've got are the documents themselves, and the documents at no point make reference to dating. With one tiny exception, which I'll get back to and spend a lot of time on, they don't make any reference to authorship. At no point in any of our Gospels do they say, I, Matthew, met Jesus on such and such a day and we did this. They never say that. So these are anonymous works. Why do they have the titles that they do? I'll give you a best guess, but the answer is that we don't know. The speculation is, and only the speculation, is that the, the labels Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John were attached later to differentiate them. That as these were going round, these um, sort of group assemblies in different cities across the Eastern Mediterranean, they, they knew what they were and that they were different ones. And so they sort of had to find some way of labelling them. That's a speculation. Um, a lot of people will say, well, but, but no, we have early manuscripts that say the gospel according to Matthew. Here's the thing with that, and why, again, it's not useful. That title, again, we think was probably added later, but it's... It's another example of the Greek word doesn't mean the English word it's translated as. So the according to, the Greek word there is kata, K-A-T-A, rendered into English. That word doesn't mean by. It's, it's not a way of designate. It's not the usual word people would use to indicate authorship. It, it Apparently, and again, I'm not a, you know, fluent in this language, I'm just going by what people who are say, but it's much more like the Matthew version than it is by Matthew. So I guess the closest analogy would be if you go onto college campuses, there'll often be the Jefferson Hall or the Adam Smith building or something like that, right? That may indicate the person who built it, or funded it, or something like that. But it may not. It may just be like we've got a few buildings that kind of look the same, and you can call them building one, two, and three, but that's not very interesting, so we call them, you, you know, the, the Adam Smith building, or the Jefferson building, or something like that. And, and why those names? Well, you know, because it's an American university, or like, you know, we're, we're into capitalism or something. And I, I don't know, it, it, it sounded good. So <laughs> those are the names we went with. It's something like that. One thing to be aware of with your New Testament when you're thinking about it historically is a lot of stuff that's in it isn't in it. So, like, the the headings, we th the, the, you know, the, the, the Gospel according to Luke, we think probably weren't in the originals. The chapter headings, the, and then the verses, so if you flick through a New Testament, I'll just do this in front of you and pick one at random, I'm in John 16.4, there's a little title that says the work of the Holy Spirit, and I go through, through a little bit and it says your sorrow will turn to joy. Those little headers aren't in the original. The little numbers that appear so you can cite it accurately, they're not in the original. 
these are later things that have been put in for ease of reference. Um, very useful reference. Um, certainly when I've been doing this, it makes it so much easier to just flick through a Bible and be like, find the bit that you need, you know? Um, but th all we have, if we think about what this would have looked like originally, it would have been a scroll of papyrus that just starts with something like in the days of John the Baptist and then just goes. An anonymous work that internally contains no evidence. So let's get started then. I always do quite long introductions, don't I? But like, it's that's the scale of the problem. Does that mean we know nothing? I don't, I don't think so at all. And I think if I just give you the evidence, I won't even have to give you the conclusion. If I just, just go through it with you, you'll start developing your own formulations as to the conclusion. How might you do that? Well, let me give you one principle that historians use to date anonymous texts, or even to date texts that claim to be written in one time, but actually when you look at them closely, might well have been written in another. Um, and it's not even a principle, it's just sort of codified common sense. I guess if you were going to put it as a principle, the principle would be you can date a text that contains prophecies by when those prophecies fail. But I don't think I even need to explain the principle. Let me just give you an example. The most famous example of this probably is the Book of Daniel. The Book of Daniel purports to be... Um, a story of, well, Daniel, duh, um, a Judean prisoner in captivity in Babylon who gets asked to make prophecies for the, for the, for the king. And Daniel makes some really good prophecies. Like, he's going to be able to predict, you know, this is in the Babylonian captivity, but he's going to be able to predict the rise of the Persian Empire, He's going to be able to predict the collapse of the Persian Empire and the Macedonian conquest of the region. He's going to be able to predict the Seleucids. And then he's going to predict, really, in quite a lot of detail, through quite opaque apocalyptic language, but still it's clear what he's referring to, um, a particular Seleucid king, Antiochus IV. He's going to know about some stuff this dude did, um, Specifically, he's going to reference um, the uh, campaigns in Egypt, 169 and 167 BC, the desecration of the temple, called the Abomination of Desolation, that's a phrase we're going to come back to, um, and then the prophecy's going to go completely haywire and nuts and, like, all sorts of mad stuff's going to happen, and he doesn't seem to be aware of the actual circumstances of Antiochus's death in 164 BCE, so a few years later, and stuff that happens after that. So you didn't, I didn't even need to give you the principle. Here's the key facts. We have a book that claims to be written in the Babylonian exile, so that's like 600 years BC. It knows about the big political events that happen over the next three, four hundred years. It knows quite a lot about what's going on up to 167 BC. But it doesn't know stuff 
that happens in 164 BC. Just, just do it yourself. When was this text written? It claims to have been written 2,600 years ago. When was it actually written? This is the most famous example because it's so easy. You don't need me to tell you the answer, right? Um, because the answer we don't know. There's no, like, historical time machine we can go back in. When I say it's right, I just mean the best judgment of scholars, which is presumably the same as what you just came up with on your own, which is it, it was probably written sometime between 167 and 164. Like, it, if it knows the whole history, and it knows a lot of detail about, like, this one specific king who's, like, you know, going to be important for Judea's history at this particular point, but then the prophecy just starts going haywire and, you know, end-of-the-world stuff and all this big dramatic stuff, but not actually what happened. Well, so what do you have here? What you have is someone writing in, you know, God knows, let's call it 165, putting words in the mouth of a prophet from a much earlier era, saying, look, this dude Daniel, man, he accurately predicted all of this stuff leading up to now, and this is what he says is going to happen next. Now, of course, the, what he says is going to happen next didn't actually happen because the person writing it didn't know the future any more than you or I know the future. But that's a key principle, and I give Daniel because Daniel is so crystal clear. People think they can get Daniel down to, like, the year and the month that it was written. And this is a text that claims to be written, the, the, the date it claims is like 400 years out, and people think they can get it down to like a really specific time window, because the prophecy is so detailed, and you can really just like see where it cuts off, right? That's one way you can date text. And I think that the Daniel example is really fun, because nobody has ever been in any, even like, yeah, biblical, nobody's been under any illusions about Daniel ever, right? And you can say, oh, there's this principle we use, and it is, you know, you, you can date a text by when the prophecy fails, right? For the very simple reason that people know what's happened before, but they don't know what's going to happen after, right? That's true for everyone. You can say it's a principle, and it is kind of useful to codify it so you have it, but it just it just emerges from the text itself, right? Um, and so many works we could get, like, a bit of a sense of by what they predict. Now, there is a lot of prophecy in the Gospels, so that's going to be a useful place to start, right? So with that example in mind, it's not going to be as crystal as Daniel is. Like, Daniel's an unusually clear example of this. But I'm literally just going to read you some Bible passages and just ask you, okay, so when was this? And it, it's your best guess. Like, and your best guess is, is not necessarily any worse than the best guess of real expert scholars. Like, they'll be able to read it in its original language and they'll have a lot more contextual information and so on. So you always want to be epistemically humble and so on. But this is something anybody can do. And that's what makes it cool and interesting. 
The one piece of contextual information you need is this. Jesus dies, and again, as sort of like, at this point, as sort of conjecture rather than proven fact, in 30 AD, there's an event you need to know about that happens 40 years later, which is the destruction of the temple. So a lot of the Gospels are concerned with the temple, which is the central religious and probably central economic institution of Judea at the time. Um, it was a site of cultic animal sacrifice on a very large scale, essentially, um, which is not at all unusual for, like, ancient Near Eastern religion at the time. And Greco-Roman religion also involves uh, animal sacrifices. Um, and this is the religious centre of Judaism. A huge number of people come through, particularly on, you know, festivals like the Passover and so on, to, to make their sacrifices. Um, and it's also a huge economic centre because a lot of money changes hands there and so on. Um, huge building. It's just before Jesus' time. It's been sort of renovated and redone. Um, Herod... Um, Herod the Great, according to the Romans, although he's, he doesn't get a good name in the Gospels, and he was a bit of a weird dude in real life. But anyway, he's rebuilt it all so that it's even bigger and more impressive than, than it used to be. Um, that will be destroyed in 70, and a very condensed version of the history is Judea, which is a sort of small, not especially powerful state, that's existed in either an uneasy relationship with the great powers of the time, such as Assyria and Babylon, historically, um, or was just simply a vassal of them, a vassal certainly through the Persian period, has slowly fallen within the orbit of Rome from being sort of like client kings, um, which the Herod the Great was, sort of. Um, he. This is the Herod who, although it's probably not historical, did the murder of the infants. Um, he was around during the Roman civil wars, you know, like Mark Antony and Augustus and so on, and he would just... Essentially just whoever looked like they were coming out on top, he'd give a lot of money to and say, hey, I'm your guy, I really support you. And could you just back my claim to the throne? And that's Herod. He built this thing up. Um, and after he dies, the um, he has some success. This, this bit's really complicated, so I won't go through it. But he has some successors. But as they die, Rome directly starts annexing the territory. And in Jesus' time, it's sort of in the process of that annexation. And... A couple of decades later, the annexation is complete, and it's gone from client kingdom to just Roman province. Um, and the, the Jews have had a the, probably little anachronistic to talk about Jews. The, the Judeans have had a, a pretty mixed relationship with their imperial overlords. Um, Persia towards the more benevolent end, probably Rome towards the less benevolent end. Um, and... In the 60s, there's a rebellion. This has happened before against uh, the Seleucid kings. Um, 
and there's a long and really, really ugly war, which ends with Jerusalem being put under siege, and after a while, after a difficult, nasty siege, of which we have all sorts of horrific accounts, um, Jerusalem's captured by the Romans, and the temple is completely destroyed and burnt down. There's a bit of controversy over whether that was deliberate or intentional, like whether it just happened as the Romans were sacking the city or they meant to do it. Not going to get into that. But this was a huge freaking deal at the time. Um, like like I say, the religious centre, and really an international religious centre, people came from all over, um, even more than other religions at the time, because the the Jews centralised worship, that's what a lot of the Old Testament's about, they centralised worship in one place, in a way that even other societies that had, you know, cultic systems with centres of ritual sacrifice didn't. Um, and this is, if you're looking at this from the Jewish tradition rather than the Christian one, this is sort of one of the defining events in the entire history of Judaism. I mean, it would have been, like... Like, this was one of your sort of, like, I guess, Pearl Harbor or 9-11 type events, one of these things that world... Probably even bigger deal than those, honestly. The, 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 the history really pivots around. And it's obviously become hugely important afterwards, but um, even at the time, people knew this was a big deal, and people were trying to make sense of it and what this meant, right? Now, so that was quite a long explanation, but I think that was actually worth going into, um, because... It, 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 I wanted to give that context rather than just be like the temple was destroyed in 70 because it will add a bit to your interpretation of this to sort of know the full story but Jesus dies in 30 as Rome is in the process of like annexing this territory in 70 there's a rebellion, and the temple is destroyed. That's your context. Let's now look at the Gospels. And with that history in mind, I'm just going to read to you, and tell me when you think this was written. So this is Mark 13, and, you know, for a lot of this, you might want to have a Bible out when you do it. You can just listen to the podcast, of course, but you either, like, go on an online Bible if you have one. Read a Bible, Bible study time with Toby. Um, <laughs> this is exactly what I thought I'd be doing on this podcast. Um, Mark 13, starting at the beginning of that chapter. And as he, he, Jesus, quote, And as he came out the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see those great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat down on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead you astray. And when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. The end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, 
kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given to you in the hour, for it is not for you to speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father and his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, parenthesis, let the reader understand, end parenthesis, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for the women who are pregnant, or are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God ordained until now, and will never be. And if the Lord has not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, shortened the days. And if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false pro Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and all the powers in heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the, the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. End quote. And that took us all the way to Mark thirteen twenty seven. Okay, so you, you'll you'll have to grant whether one's religious or not. It's it's quite powerful stuff, right? And even if you're not religious, you probably heard some turns of phrase in there that are sort of fam culturally familiar to you, right? Um, that this is classic Christian apocalypticism here. Um, but, ooh, okay, like, power of the writing aside, when do we date that? Go ahead and just guess, right? Like, when would you put that? Just, just put together in your head the history I told you, and that little snippet of writing, you know, 26 verses from from Mark. When would you date it? I'll, I'll call attention to a few bits of it to just, um, that might offer some clues. And these are actually slightly contradictory. So Jesus, he said, isn't the, isn't the building great? That makes sense, right? Because it's it's not actually that long at this point after it's all been like redone up and made bigger and better as part of um, Herod's renovation. So that that totally tracks. 
Um, and Jesus said, you know, not one stone will be left standing on top of the other. So in other words, this is all going to get destroyed, which we know it will, right? Now, actually, if I want to really nitpick, that's not quite a correct... Pro it doesn't matter at all, but, like, not quite a correct prophecy, because there is a tiny bit of that temple still standing. The temple itself was built on, like, this great raised platform, so it had, like, these huge courtyards and so on, with, like, different areas and, like, the, the, the sort of holiest of holies in the, in, in the middle. Um, the temple itself is gone, so maybe if he's talking about the literal temple, but there is a bit of the outside wall still left. Um, you'll, you'll have seen pictures of it, the so-called Western Wall in Jerusalem, um, that's a sort of centre uh, um, of worship today. Um, that's what that is. That's the last little bit that's left of this temple. Anyway, so there's that prediction. There's various predictions of false prophets and so on. I don't think these are especially important for dating. Um, these are, I would say, evidence of the fact that early Christianity was not one thing. And you, you, you get this very, very clearly in Paul, where Paul who's closer to the events will be like and there's been been some people saying going around saying that gentile converts need to be um um circumcised let me tell you why that's wrong so there's clearly rival version even in its very early history rival versions and i'd interpret all the false prophet stuff in that light you remember i said the phrase abomination of desolation would be important um what Mark seems to think is going to happen is that some sort of pagan shrine and pagan sacrifice will start happening on the site of the temple, which didn't happen. They just destroyed it. It didn't become like something else. Um, centuries and centuries later, when there's the Muslim conquests, they'll build the Dome of the Rock on the same site, but that's not like way, way, way down the line from here. Um, what he seems to be calling back to is a bit in Jewish history where I, I mentioned that the Jews rebelled against the Seleucids. What kicked that off is the Seleucids wanted to Hellenize, so become, like, culturally Greek, and so they said, okay, you can, you know, worship your god in your temple, but you also have to do, like, um, you also have to do, like, Greek-style sacrifices, and, the, you know, the Jewish priests were like, absolutely not. And the Seleucids were like, yeah, we think we're going to, and they sacrificed a pig in the Jewish temple, which, if you know anything about Judaism is like an absolute no-go, right? I don't know if they, it was intended to be as offensive as it was, but it was. And everyone was just like, even people who were like, um, I guess you could say like collaborators with the regime or whatever, were just like, oh, hell no, absolutely not. Are, are you killing Oinkas in here? Hell no. And this was, that's the Maccabean revolt. Um, so Maccabees, which is a book... It's in some Bibles, but not others, I forget. Anyway, um, that's the Maccabean Revolt. Um, and that wasn't... I mean, it was a fair bit ago, but that, that was something that obviously would have been very known to, to Jews at the time. And so, so Mark seems to be calling back to that. 
and saying this this some sort of desecration is going to happen in the temple and that's the sign of it um and then finally he goes you, you get this big apocalyptic prophecy the son of man coming on the clouds and the elect being saved and the, the, the proper eschaton the end of things the the biblical apocalypse right so what are we thinking in terms of dating there i think if you add together the prediction about the destruction of the temple and the prediction of the eschaton, because those are linked, the temple being destroyed and these wars and nations rising against nations, is that's the birth pains, right? That's the sign that it's all coming to an end. Um, so that would speak to just after the destruction of the temple, right? So like 70, like bang after. Right, because it can't, it can't be too far after the destruction of the temple, because he thinks the destruction of the temple is that's essentially like the starting gun for the apocalypse. So it couldn't be in like, oh, it, it would be weird if someone wrote this in ninety. I'm trying to be careful as I talk to say it couldn't have been. People always say this; it couldn't have been with like a real sense of certainty. I think the argument's much more subtle than that. The argument is, it would be weird if someone wrote that 20 years after the destruction of the temple. It would be less weird if someone wrote that a month after the destruction of the temple. You can see this huge cataclysmic, traumatic, horribly traumatic, like... I don't, I don't mean to make light of this history, by the way. The, you know, these are real people and so on, I'm, and certainly to them it wasn't an abstract game like I'm making it. But you can see this thing happening and someone writing this in the immediate aftermath, right? The one bit that might push it push you back a tiny bit earlier is the abomination of desolation. So again, you date a text by when the prophecy starts going wrong. So the prophecy obviously start, starts going wrong in that the Son of Man didn't come back on the clouds and usher in the eschaton, right? That's wrong. That event didn't immediately follow from the destruction of the temple. So that would put it just one side of 70. Or you could go with the abomination of desolation bit, and that would put it just before. This is, this is probably the most conventional dating, is you say the Jewish war... At this point, it had been going on about four years, and you, maybe this is written in like the end game, where it's pretty clear that the Romans are going to take Jerusalem and something bad's going to happen. Um, so, it, in a sense, it's a correct prophecy, right? Like you've got someone who, when Jerusalem is under siege is um, writing, because he's got this stuff about the, the women and the children, like, get out, go to the mountains, don't be in Jerusalem. Okay, that makes sense, right, if it's just before the fall. Um, but he doesn't quite know what's going to... He, he, he can... It's pretty obvious the way this is going to turn out, but he doesn't quite know what's, what's going to happen at the end game. And so you've kind of got two predictions. One is the sack of the temple, and the other is like they convert it into like a pagan shrine or something. And you've kind of got both sitting there. So maybe it's like just maybe it's like 69 or something like that. 
which one of those is right? Yeah, don't know. People 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 put it both ways. Um, Dale Martin puts it, who I've had on the podcast, just before. He says, like, yeah, like, 69. Like, just shy of the destruction of the temple. Um, Mark Goodacre, who's done, you know, has a podcast on this and has done a lot of lectures online and so on, which I've watched. He puts it just after, like, maybe, like, 71 or something. Um... I, either way, either way, just on the basis of that one passage, you, you, you've sort of got it down to a range of, like, a few years, right? That's not horrible for dating. So if we're putting this, let's say, like, 69 to 71, we're putting it about 40 years after Jesus died, right? Um, and do you see what I mean, Lefort? I didn't... I. I talk you through the history, I give you the quote, and I call your attention to a few bits in the quote, but the conclusion just sort of emerges from the text itself on a close reading. Um, any other prophecies we can use? Yeah, loads, loads. Now, these don't all shade it in quite as exactly as that, but I think a lot of them give interesting contextual information. So here's just a really short one. Um, also, for Let's just start with Mark. Mark 9, 1. And he said to them, Truly I say unto you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after he has come with power. End quote. So, this one has really bothered Christians for a while, because what Jesus seems to be saying is the end of the world will occur within the lifetimes of some people present here. Um, and there's, there's, there's all sorts of solutions to this. So a literalist solution is called the wandering Jew, where apparently one dude is just stays alive and wanders the earth for thousands of years until Jesus eventually comes back. Um, but you could also, like, a lot of people will interpret this in a much more sort of metaphorical way and say, well, by taste death, he means we receive everlasting life through our faith and, and the, the coming of the cross and all that, right? Um, I, I don't, like, from a historical point of view, I don't think we need to sort of concern ourselves with that. And again, it's not like this has to have been written at a certain time. It's just, it's a bit weird if someone wrote that a hundred years afterwards. It's less weird. That's all we've got here, really, is more weird and less weird, right? It's less weird if someone wrote that um, during a time when there could conceivably have been people who were still alive. Um, so if we're dating Mark to around 70 as, you know, just a sort of first pass at this, um, does that match? Yeah, yeah, that that's fine, basically, right? Like, if Jesus is talking to a big crowd, life expectancy wasn't anywhere near what it is now back then. Um, a lot of people died in, as infants, a lot of mothers died giving birth men died in conflicts, women died in conflicts too, um, you know, you, you get any sort of disease that that could be the end of you, but with all that said, it wasn't, like, unusual for people to live to, like, 60 or something, um, 
According to tradition, Paul would have been in his early 70s when he died. And he was, again, according to tradition, not really, we don't really know, but Paul was executed. He didn't die of old age. So and, you know, plen- we have plenty of examples of people in the ancient world living to like 90 or something. Like it wasn't common, but it happened. Um, so if Jesus is talking to a big crowd of people, say, you know, a few hundred or something, like the idea that, you know, a certain number of the younger ones will still be around in 40 years. Yeah, that that totally tracks. Um, so this is another one where, like, it's not proof positive, um, but just, like, when would it be the least weird for someone to be writing this? And I think you kind of, like, this one doesn't give you a date, but it gives you, like, a date range. It would be weird if someone was writing this 100 years after the fact. I also... This is a bit speculative. Wouldn't it also be kind of weird if they were writing it immediately after the fact? Like, when when you get prophecies that are, like, coterminous with the events, um, Jesus isn't saying... It's, it's right now, you know. Um, like, he doesn't say... All of you here will see it, or most of you here will see it. He says some of you will still be alive. So, I don't know, complete guess, but I would say at least 20 years from the events. Max 50, 60 years from the events. It's quite a big range, but it gives you a bit of a range. We're beginning to, like, shade in the probabilities here a bit, right? So, that that seems like quite... A solid answer that we've cocked, cocked up, concocted, uh, so far. Um, what would the apologist say to that? The apologist would say, well, you don't believe in prophecy. Like, Jesus actually, this, was, this wasn't someone writing something after the fact. Like, it wasn't like the temple happened and then someone just made it up that Jesus said this. Jesus said this. And in fact, even without any belief in Jesus being divinely inspired, is it that crazy that this just was a correct prophecy? That Jesus said the temple was going to be destroyed? And it was. No, I, I don't think that's that wild. Like, crazier things have happened. That, that could very, very, very well be the case. And in which case... Your dating of 70 just completely falls out. Like, it can't really... Well, it can. Again, I'm always catching myself using the can't word. It would be weird if it was much later than 70. But could it have been before? Could it have been, like, 50 or something like that? I'm inclined to think not. But this is a pure plausibility argument I'm going to give you. And... It's not, like, airtight or waterproof. This is all just, like, I'm reading you the text. You come to your judgments. Um, I think you also want to sort of look at not just, like, what is exactly being prophesied, but what's the function of prophecy in this document. If we're looking at this as a work of literature as much as anything else... Um... You know, I I think, like, look at how prophecy actually works today. 
um, I take this example from Mark Goodacre in one of his talks. There was that really stupid film called The Man Who Painted 9-11, right? And, you know, it's exactly what it sounds like. There was some dude who painted what he thought was going to happen in the future, and sometime before 9-11, he painted a picture of planes crashing into buildings and fire. Okay, so, um, to, to quote Wint, you've got to hand it to him, right? That was a correct prophecy. Why is a film being made about him? Because it happened, right? They wouldn't have made that film if it didn't happen, or if the prophecy was, you know, sufficiently distinct. If he'd drawn a picture of a bomb blowing up the Statue of Liberty or something, they wouldn't have made that documentary. Or if they were making a documentary about him for some other reason, they're just, you know, this is a guy who paints cool paintings, we're making a documentary about him. The documentary wouldn't centre around the prophecy that the Statue of Liberty would get blown up. Correct prophecies aren't that weird when you think about it. I mean, put it this way. People do or say things that claim to be predicting the future all the time, right? Some of them will happen, just sort of by statistics, right? Like, put it this way. If I took a thousand people and I said, go ahead and write down ten things that you think are going to happen in the future... And, you know, they can be as wild as you want. Really, like, let your imaginations run with this. And I come back in 10, 20 years, whatever. Some number of them will be right. And some of the ones that will be right will be, like, actually, like, quite specific. And they predicted something that, like, wow, how on earth could they have known that? Well, they, I mean, they didn't, not really, right? But they did get it right. Well, the world is constantly just running that experiment for us, right? People, be it in a religious context or some New Age context or some sort of, like, forecasting context, people are making predictions or prophecies all the time, right? And some number of them will happen. It's, it's, it's not only not weird, it's actually sort of an inevitability. Um, so if you look at it from that point of view, I don't think it's crazy to think... I mean, I'll put it this way, I don't know if the historical Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple or not. But if he did, you know, there was all sorts of people running around making all sorts of prophecies... It's a bit, you know, the, the the satire of this in the life of Brian, where Brian's walking around ancient Judah and there's like a guy on every street corner spouting something off. Okay, that's being silly, but it's not a million miles from the truth. There were all sorts of prophets in those days. Israel had a strong prophetic tradition and was not that unusual for societies at the time in doing so. The, the norm is that societies, and particularly societies in periods of, you know, political, religious upheaval, political transition, which Judah was at that time, um, 
to have all sorts of people saying quite dramatic things, right? And so if you think in the generations um, preceding the destruction of the temple, you know, there could have been hundreds of people saying all sorts of stuff. And one of them could very well have been this Jesus fellow saying, yeah, temple's going to be destroyed. And he gets remembered because he's the one who got it right. That's completely plausible. But when when does the documentary The Man Who Predicted 9-11 get made? When do people start writing it up and paying attention to it? When do they make films, or in this case, scrolls of papyrus, who really focus on and centre that prophecy? They make those after the thing happened, right? I'll read you one more bit from Mark that, to me, this is pretty convincing of that hypothesis, that regardless of whether the historical Jesus made this prophecy or not, the text makes much more sense if it's being read as happening after the destruction, if it's read as being written after the destruction of the temple, or in Mark's case, maybe just before, but when it was obvious it was going to happen. Um, and this is towards... Um, the end of Mark, this is Mark fifteen twenty one, when Jesus is has already lost the trial and he's being read, led away to be crucified. And I'm going to read it to you, and I'll give you my interpretation, but I'll read it to you and maybe even just pause it and come up with your own. What's your interpretation of what the author of the text is doing with prophecy here? Why are they writing it up this way? And keep in mind, we're not dealing with a purely sort of neutral, objective historian, if such a thing could even exist. Keep in mind, the person who is writing this believes in Jesus as a prophet, believes in Jesus as a messiah, and wants to convince other people of that. These are, in a sort of value-neutral sense of the term, propaganda documents, right? Why is it being written this way? And what historical period would it make sense for it to be written this way? The, the passage I'm going to read you is perfectly logically possible that it was written either just after the event or hundreds of years later. There's no, like, you know, hard, like it absolutely couldn't have been. It's just a judgment call. That's all we've got here. When would it make the most sense for someone who does believe in the reality of this and does want to convince people of this to write the following? Mark 15.21, quote, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of, the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, 
you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the priests with the scribes mocked him, saying to one another, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. End quote. Okay, I really love the Gospel of Mark. Um, because I'm a fricking edgelord, Mark is my favourite gospel. And this is a really, like, interesting passage. You could write, like, books. People have <laughs> written books just on this passage. Um, at a first pass, it's odd, isn't it? It's, it's a description of abject weakness and humiliation, right? And this is a, a, a major theme in Mark. Mark likes inversions, like the, the strength through weakness, right? Um, but let's, for now, just focus in on the bit of the prophecy. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. The rebuild it in three days bit is interesting, because that didn't happen. Maybe that speaks to this being, again, just before the, the destruction of the temple. But just, you, you know, you said the temple would be destroyed and you can't even get yourself off a cross. What's going on there? What's Regardless of whether we think that's historical, whether someone actually said that to Jesus or not, why is the author choosing to include that in the text? I'll give you my account, and my account is, is not, like, original to me. I'm getting this from, you know, scholars and so on. But what what would be your guess for that? What would be your thoughts? My thought is that that makes so much more sense if the audience who's reading that text knows that the temple has been destroyed. Right? If we're way out, if we're like in AD 40 or something, and not only has the temple not been destroyed, there's no indication that it's going to be, well, again, it's not impossible that text could have been written then. But then it's just much more like, well, there was some mad guy and we executed him, right? But if you know the temple has been destroyed, and if it's just happened, this incredibly brutal, traumatising event, then there's an incredible dramatic irony, right, as you read that passage. You're reading the passage where Jesus has said the temple is going to be destroyed. One of the reasons probably he was executed is that he said the temple was going to be destroyed. And as he's being led away to execution, people are going, ah, ah, you who said the temple who was going to be destroyed, and the reader's going like, but it was! It was! He was right! What are you doing? Stop! And I think what, what Mark does really, really well is if you read it through the eyes of someone who's just lived through this, there's, there's a terrible, there's a sense of, like, this mad rush towards terrible inevitability in Mark. Mark's the shortest gospel. It doesn't include the birth narratives. 
It doesn't have resurrection narratives. It's very fast-paced. Marx constantly using words like immediately this, immediately this, immediately this. Um, there's a sense of, like, a pull towards the end. It's not always incredibly well written, but it's incredibly well structured. And you're getting pulled towards this final destination, which is the crucifixion, that you sort of know is coming. And I think what he's, the author's trying to do here is create a sense in the reader of like, no, come on, don't, you, you, you guys are making such a mistake here, this guy had it right all along, and you're going to kill the one guy who was telling you what was coming. And it also kind of validates them saying King of the Jews as a mocking phrase, because it's like, the people who are doing this are getting everything wrong. The temple is going to be destroyed. This was the King of the Jews. Um, and what you'll also, well, I'll point it out for you, um, is... This is the point where the scriptural allusions start coming really thick and fast. Um, a lot of what's happening here is citing Old Testament, or what we, people in the Christian tradition call Old Testament. To them would have just been the scriptures, or to Jewish people today would just be the scriptures. But the um, they um, cast lots for his clothes. That's a quote from the Old Testament, and it's just sort of thrown in there. Um, so you've got the, the, the... It's creating a very strong sense of dramatic irony, coupled together with a sense of almost divine time and of prophecy being fulfilled, coupled together with... A sense that something is going terribly wrong here, right? Um, you'll notice, well, when a few chapters, a few passages back, when he's brought before Pilate, Pilate's going like, well, this guy seems innocent to me. This guy seems innocent to me. Um, and if you add it all up, it creates this incredible sort of, like, tension as you're reading through it of, like, the culminating point of the story. And then the story just ends. Um, if you get to Mark 16, um, they find an empty tomb, and then that's it. Anything you read after that wasn't there in the first manuscripts. And in my Bible, it just pauses at Mark 16, 8, and says, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 to 20. And what that means is this was added on hundreds of years later by a later author um, but you get pulled towards this and then it's cut to black that sort of literary analysis by the way is one of the re one of many reasons but one of the reasons I would give for why I don't buy the mythicist position that this is all just made up w why? I've just shown you what I think is pretty clear evidence of how heavily the author is, like, writing this up, right? Is, like, really concentrating on, like, creating dramatic irony, creating a sense of something terrible happening, creating a sense of scripture being fulfilled. Um, so why do I think all of that sort of literary technique is actually evidence for its historicity? Because they're having to write around some pretty difficult facts to deal with, right? 
if you were inventing a story from scratch, you wouldn't invent this. They have to deal with the fact that Jesus actually was crucified. I think it makes all of the sort of literary techniques I've talked about make far more sense if Jesus actually was crucified. And then as now, when someone is victim of state violence, everyone just sort of assumes, well, they must have done something to deserve it. It's, it's you know, one of the reasons, like, Black Lives Matter spends so much time trying to humanise victims of police violence, because so many people just go, well, he probably didn't follow the cops' orders. Probably they were a thug, or they did something to deserve it. Exactly the same here. Like, most people's reaction to someone being crucified, well, they probably were a bandit, a leistoi is the Greek word. Um, probably were a traitor. You know, why should we care about this person? And so they really have to pull out all of the literary stops to create a compelling account, right? They really have to, like, do the work. And you can see when you do, like, close analysis of this text, like, how many different literary techniques they're pulling in to do that to create a compelling story in which the central figure of this religion being tortured and executed is not a sign of his failure, it's not a sign of the weakness of the religion, it's not a sign that he was wrong, it's actually a sign that he was right and it's a sign of power. That's a tough brief for an author, right? And to be fair to the authors of the Gospels, they did a pretty compelling job of it. Like, people to this day who aren't reading it with the context people then would have been reading it, people find this story moving and powerful. Again, irrespective of the historicity, if they wanted to create an engaging story, they did that, right? So, with all of that in mind, what does that tell us about the inclusion of the prophecy that people spat back in his face that, oh, you said the temple was going to be destroyed. I would submit to you that makes infinitely more sense if if the author writing it knows that his audience know that the temple has been destroyed. Now, all of the Gospels, all four canonical Gospels, deal with this prophecy of the destruction of the temple. And that's probably, if you've, you know, that's probably one of the big reasons most historians date them all post-70. But they deal with it in different ways. And, you know, there's no particular reason to think they were all written at exactly the same time, right? So let's just have a quick look at Luke. Luke, by the way, just for context, is a longer gospel than Mark. It covers a lot of the same stories Mark does, and it covers them in a similar way, but there's also a lot of other material that isn't found in Mark. Um, so here's Luke's rendition of Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple. This is Luke 21.5. And while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, he being Jesus, As for these things that you will see, the days will come where they will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, 
when will these things be and what will the sign that they be that they are about to take place and he said do not be led astray for many will come in my name saying i am he and the time is at hand do not go after them when you hear of wars and tumults do not be terrified for these things must first take place but the end will not be at once end quote so very very similar but then this little bit tagged in the end will not be at once um skipping forward we've got another very similar bit um very similar about like false prophets skipping to 2120 the destruction of jerusalem quote but when you see jerusalem surrounded by armies then know that desolation is come near let those who are in judah flee to the mountains let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are in our country enter it for these of the days of vengeance to fulfill what is written alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people they will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led captive among all nations and jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the gentiles until the time of the gentiles has been fulfilled end quote so it's pretty similar to what we covered in mark right but there's a few differences let, let me just call apart the differences and then again you tell me how would that affect your perception of its dating just on a sort of guesswork so the differences are the bit about the abomination of desolation has come out and instead we have a much more specific prediction of jerusalem being destroyed being surrounded by armies and then destroyed which happened right and then he's there's a couple of bits that aren't in mark about the end will not be at once and jerusalem being destroyed is still the starting pistol for the apocalypse but there's going to be like this buffer zone called the time of the gentiles between the destruction of the temple and the true end of the world So, I mean, I guess if you were literalist, we're still in the time of the Gentiles, right? But never mind that. What's your thoughts on dating for this? I think the, the only sensible con well, no, no, not the only sensible conclusion. The one that makes sense to me. You're never going to do better than that, right? This is a bit afterwards, right? I said before, I don't think Mark makes... I think you can you can totally argue the case of if it was just before or just after the year 70 but it's not 10 or 20 years after 70 because again mark thinks that the destruction of the temple is going to be immediately followed or pretty closely followed by the son of man coming back on the clouds right luke's saying Jesus predicted the temple. It's doing the same literary and narrative work in, in Luke that it is in Mark. But then he's also saying, this is like the beginning of the end, but it won't happen immediately. Instead, there'll be... 
a period called the time of the Gentiles. Now, people of this this huge amount have been like, what on earth does Luke mean by the time of the Gentiles? And like, it, it, we don't get like a tight definition of this. Um, but I don't think we really need one for for our purposes, which is trying to look at dating. This was clearly a phrase that had been developed in Christian circles at the time, and it meant something specific to them. And what exactly it meant, because we never do get a definition, is probably lost to us now, right? They, they if you don't ask the author of Luke, the other, this, this, when you mention the time of the Gentiles, what do you keep in mind? They didn't have like copy editors or anything back then. What do, what do you mean by that, Luke? He'd have gone, oh right, yeah, of course, this is what I mean. But he's writing for an audience who probably also would have known what it meant, um, so he doesn't elaborate. But for our purposes. It's enough. Like, there's some sort of buffer zone. Fall of the Temple is still tied to the Apocalypse. But there's a buffer zone. And this is really almost universally how prophetic traditions or religious accounts square the circle of the timelines that they're giving not lining up with the timelines in the world. So a very obvious one is Genesis says, you know, the earth was created in six days. Some people will just go to that, it is six literal days, and if science says otherwise, then so much the worse for science. What most Christians will do is say six days means like six, um, six like periods of creation. But they're not lit. You know, these, these periods might have been longer than our twenty-four hours, right? These are like you know, time zones, right? Um, same with apocalyptic prophecy today. Is there's quite a few prophecies of the end of the world in the Old Testament, and a lot of people will sort of go, ah, but you know, he says it's going to happen in three hundred and sixty-five days. But what they mean by a day is actually ten years. Um, and so they. they they hang on to the idea of the prophecy being true, but then get really flexible with the definitions of time within that. And that's not unique to the Christian tradition or the Jewish tradition. Any prophetic tradition does that, because, you know, the the, the passage of linear time in our world is not forgiving on prophecy, right? Like, it doesn't feel the need to to, to conform itself to it. And so... If you're not willing to abandon the prophecy as true, but you also have to square that with just reality, you start stretching definitions, right? And so just apply that to this thought about the um, time of the Gentiles. We don't know exactly what it meant, but its function seems clear enough to me. It's a buffer zone. Okay, so I don't think I need to give the conclusion there about dating. It just sort of falls out. This is significantly after the, the destruction of the temple. Um, more than five years, right? Let's say something like that. It, it's got to the point where, like, the end of the world hasn't happened, and so you need a workaround, right? How much later? We don't know. Again, the documents themselves do not 
date themselves. Um, so all we've got are these context clues, and they're not like 100% definitive. It's just sort of like a series of cumulative judgments of like, in what time period would it, would this make the most sense? In what time period would it have been weird for someone to write this? I've already said I don't think it's inconceivable that people wrote up a prophecy of the destruction of the temple before it happened, but I think when prophecies get publicised is when they've happened, right? Um, I do think, I do think the time of the Gentiles would have been weird if it was written before the destruction of the temple. Like, why would you add that in? Why would you make that a part of your prophecy if it was before the event? Not impossible, but definitely weird, right? It makes much more sense as an after-the-fact workaround. Um, so, if that gives us sort of a minimum date from, for Luke, do we have, like, a maximum date? Not really. I think the best that you've got there is you can say, well, how long did he envisage the time of the Gentiles being? For a lot of people today, we're still in the time of the Gentiles, right? But for this, you know, people who read this historically, and what did the author of Luke, you know, again, who probably wasn't called Luke, but you know, what did what did he think the phrase meant? People generally sort of come to the conclusion that he thought it would be about a generation. And one bit of evidence for that is Luke also includes the saying about some of you who are listening to this will still be alive when the end comes. That's in Mark, it's in Luke, it's in Matthew, it's not in John. So does, does the, again, what's, what's your explanation? For, for 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 that set of facts about the text. Just just sort of guesswork. Is Matthew, Mark and Luke are writing in a time when that statement could conceivably have made some literal sense, and John isn't. But this is one, there's many, but one of the reasons John gets dated much later than the other three. In fact, Mark Goodacre says he thinks, and this argument's a bit technical, so I'm not going to go into it, but he thinks that John is aware of that tradition, that Jesus said some people will be living, he'll see the end, and kind of tries to just write around it. And there's some statements in John that are kind of like him saying, this is actually what was said. Um, so John's way past the point where that could have been plausible. Luke, is there a date we could give Luke where there's enough of a buffer from the temple being destroyed? There's enough of a time gap that you would need a buffer, sorry, but not so much of one that there couldn't conceivably still be a few people alive who had heard Jesus speak. If your guess is as good as mine. 80? 80 AD? I pick 80 because 80 is, is sort of, that's the, the, the answer most historians give. Not all, not all, um, but most. Um, but it's a guess, and no one claims it's anything other than a guess. Why 80? You've got 10 years since the temple was destroyed. You'd 
if the expectation had been that the temple being destroyed would prefigure the apocalypse, and the apocalypse hasn't happened, ten years is enough time that you'd need to start thinking through those sorts of workarounds. It's 50 years out from Jesus' death, so people who were 20 when Jesus was speaking would be 70 now. Yeah, it's just on the sort of tail end of when you could sort of say that with a straight face, right? But, you know, it could be 65, it could be 75, right? Like, we don't really know. But if you add all that up, you just get sort of layers of evidence, right? And none of them are sort of conclusive, but if you hold them all in your head at the same time, you sort of begin to get a profile of what the most plausible explanation might be. I'll give you I'll give you just one more. But this this is a powerful one. It won't give you an exact date, but I think definitely puts us in a range. You remember I said before the gospels never talk about their dating and with one exception they don't talk about the process of authorship. They don't talk about how these texts came to be written. That's true for all four of the Gospels, except for one sentence in Luke. One sentence that speaks to how this document was created. And it's a really freaking useful sentence, and it's really powerful, and he very directly tells you how this document was created, and it gives you so much that you immediately are left wishing that he'd gone on for a bit more and told you more. And it's the first sentence of Luke. And I'm always a little bit surprised that people sort of aren't, when they debate the historicity of the Gospels, they, they do it without reference to this sentence. When I say people, I mean you're sort of like atheist versus fundamentalist-like online debates. Um, historians obviously know this sentence. Entire books have been written. I have read entire books about this sentence. Um, and it's the first sentence of Luke. It's quite a long sentence. It's the first four, um, first four verses of Luke, but in the original Greek it's all one sentence. Um, and uh, here it is. Um, quote, Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Insomuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. End quote. It's sort of a dedication, right? He's writing it for someone, Theophilus, who we have no idea who this guy who, who this guy is. He's mentioned at one other point in the Bible, which I'll get back to. Um, but it gives us an incredible amount of detail, like real specificity, on how Luke's creating the gospel. So first of all, what does he not say? 
He doesn't say, let me write up an account of the things I saw Jesus do. He explicitly doesn't say that. And I think it's very, very strongly implied that he's not an eyewitness. Because he mentions eyewitnesses, he says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and delivered them to us. So when he's talking about eyewitnesses, he's aware that there were, past tense, were eyewitnesses, but he's not one of them, right? He's saying there were people who passed these stories on orderly to us. And he's also telling us, quite interestingly, that Luke's not the first gospel. He's saying, others have done this before me. And so how do you translate that into modern? Translate that into modern, what would you say? You'd say something like, a bunch of people have tried to, to, to document this before, and we also have oral traditions coming from people who were part of our communities who eyewitnessed it. I'm compiling together those written oral sources, and I'm producing my own document. Something like that, right? Like, that's what Luke's telling us about how he wrote this gospel. And like I say, it tells you so much, and then you immediately want to know more. You immediately want to know, which sources do you have? What are your written sources? It's not like they had exact citations back then or anything. And when you say there were eyewitnesses, are, are, are these people that you used to know? Have you, has Paul, has, has the author of Luke himself interviewed eyewitnesses? Or is he a little bit removed from that? Really, really unclear, right? But I think immediately we can start to do some dating here. This isn't within a generation of Jesus' death. There were eyewitnesses. So I think that tracks with, with 80 as a rough dating. And that's sort of confirmation bias, I'm reading a date into it, but it's not immediately afterwards, right? At the same time, it's not hundreds of years removed either. Just taking this, that Luke is telling the truth at the beginning of his gospel about how that gospel is written, this isn't, let's just assume for the moment that this isn't a much later text pretending to be earlier, because I think if it were pretending to be earlier, it would just start... I, so-and-so, Gospel of Jesus, and write, writing down, you know, Disciple of Jesus, sorry, and writing down the things that I saw. I don't think this is the sort of preface you'd invent, but what he's not saying is that these first-hand witnesses are so far back removed. He either knew them or he knew of them. Maybe he, like... <laughs> reading between the lines, maybe Luke knows people who knew eyewitnesses back in the day, right? There were eyewitnesses as parts of these communities within living memory, and Luke's sort of preserving that. Something like that, right? There is one other way in which this little inscription can be quite useful for dating, as opposed... It sort of gives us a general sort of picture of the environment in which... The, the gospel was written, right? Um, I mentioned that Theophilus is mentioned one more time in the Bible. This is the first sentence of Acts. I'll just read it to you. In the first book, O Theophilus, 
I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, until afterwards he had given commands through the Holy Spirits to the apostles whom he had chosen. Very simple, very terse, but that tells us quite a lot, right? And like I say, in this, I'm really just trying to give you the data. I'll give you my interpretations. I'll tell you what, like, most historians tend to think. I'll tell you areas where historians are divided. But you can make these judgment calls yourself. What's the first, most obvious conclusion that falls out of that? That the author of Luke's is also the author of Acts of the Apostles, right? They're dedicated to the same person. And the author of Acts of the Apostles makes reference to a first book, which is a gospel of Jesus' life. So although we don't have the name of this author, probably wasn't someone called Luke, it's the same author, right? And people who have done real detailed analysis can show that it has the same sort of vocabulary and writing style. Um, the, the books also have a similar sort of theology to them. They're concerned with the same sorts of questions. The other point that's useful for dating is they were probably written at about the same time, right? I mean, maybe they were like a few years apart or something, but they're being dedicated to the same person, and Acts of the Apostles makes reference to Luke as the first book. So they could conceivably have been written just, like, together. Like, these were almost, like, two volumes of one work. Don't know, pure speculation. But it'd be weird if they were, like, 20 years apart or something, right? Now, if they were written at roughly the same time, that means that Luke really can't, and can't here is actually a can't, not like a balance of probabilities, not like my best interpretation is. Luke really can't have been written before about 65. Why? Because Acts of the Apostles, like I say, it's like a sequel to the Gospel. It deals with... well, it deals with the Acts of the Apostles, but it deals with what happened to the followers of Jesus after his death. Uh, mostly what happened to Paul, but there's plenty of other stuff in there. And the events of Acts of the Apostles run through to about 65. So it has to have been written after that, right? And if Luke was written around about the same time, then Luke has to be post-65. So again, that's just one more bit of data, one more sort of argument, I think a very strong argument, to throw into this... Um, profile that we're creating. Now, let's just talk a little bit, though, about... He mentions eyewitnesses. He mentions that he's not one. I think very strongly implies that he's not one. It, I think it's a little bit unclear if, like, maybe when Luke was younger, he, he knew an eyewitness, or maybe he knows people who've known eyewitnesses either would fit with the sort of dating profile that we're looking at, right? But he also says, in so much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us. And do, do you see what I mean, therefore, about it? This, this, like, one sentence gives you so much 
and then you wish it had given you more. When Luke says many have have written accounts before us, my immediate question is how many? Is many, right? Like, are we talking two? Are we talking ten? Are we talking two hundred? The text doesn't really tell us. So I, I've absolutely gone down the rabbit hole on this one, um, because apparently this is what I'm choosing to do with my life. But um, the Greek word being translated as many is poloi. And for once, for once, the English translation that we're given actually seems to pretty well capture the word. Um, we'd use it like we use many. And you could use it as a sort of the many, referring to it like that. It's the same word as when we say hoi poloi, the many. That's where that comes from, you know, if, if you're not an English idiot. Um, English upper class people often refer to the lower classes as the hoi poloi. And that comes from them reading Pericles' funeral, funeral oration um, in the history of the Peloponnesian War, where Pericles uses it in a positive way, praising Athenian democracy, contrasting the hoi polloi, the many, with the hoi ogloi, the few, right? And the many and the few like that do quite a lot of work, obviously, in democratic theory. I also looked it up in a concordance. So a concordance is you can get um, the text of the Bible with the Greek and the English side by side, and you can use it to isolate a particular Greek word and say, show me all the times that that same word occurs either within that book or within the, the New Testament generally. And so I was just curious, I was like, how is Luke using that word? Could we gain some, you know, knowledge of, like, what does he... When he says many have written texts before him, like, what... Are we calling to mind, like, one or two, or, like, a dozen or more? Um, so here's here's just the a few of the other instances of how Luke uses it. Luke 1, 1, obviously, in so much as many have undertaken to write the Gospels. Um, Luke 1, 14, and in gladness many will rejoice. Luke 4, 27, and there were many lepers in Israel. Luke 5, 15, and large crowds. So it's not being translated as many there, it's being translated as large but and a crowd of lots, a crowd of many, would be perhaps if we wanted to maintain the same word. Uh, Luke 10, 24, for I say to you that many prophets. Luke 14, 25, now large crowds were going along. Again, crowds of many, if you wanted to keep the translation. Luke 21, 8, which we've already covered. To it is you that are not misled, for many will come talking about false prophets. Um, uh, f um, then we get on to the John ones. But okay, that was like super nerdy. But just at a first pass, it's a, it's a word Luke uses a few times. He uses it consistently with how it was used in the ancient world and how it's used in the other books of the New Testament. When he see says many, it seems to mean many. Now maybe in this instance, 
there's some subtlety of the ancient Greek that I'm not getting. I don't speak this language fluently, although, like I say, I've picked up more than a few words doing this. Many does mean many. And would it be that weird if when he says many, he does mean, like, like 12, 13, 20? And, okay, this is a Toby point I'm going to make here. And so take this with even less confidence than you have anything else I've said. But this is where I sort of want to interject my own opinion a little bit. Um, and I think many means many. Um, I don't have, like, a number for you. Um, but I think Luke has a bunch of these, and he's aware of even more. And one point I'd want to make is, is counter to what professional historians will want to stress when they're teaching these materials. So again, I said at the beginning, don't have that much confidence in any of this. This is all just best guesses. Um, and now I'm giving you a guess that probably cuts against at least some of the tone and tenor of how this tends to be presented. So like I say, your epistemic confidence here should be, you know, bordering on zero. But hear me out. Historians, when they teach these set of documents that we call the New Testament, always want to stress, and correctly, that you have to remember that we're not dealing with literate societies. When we talk about, like, the letter writing of Paul, most of the people in the assemblies, again, I'm translating churches as assemblies here, most of the people in these early assemblies would not have been able to read the letters, they would have been read aloud to them. Um, and there would have been far, far, far... I mean, we're just swimming in information these days, right? You, pro you know, if you do a desk job and send emails, you probably read and create a few dozen documents every single day. We're not in... you know, it's not that. You have to keep in mind that written documents were much rarer and that most people couldn't read. That's all true enough as it goes, but I think there's there's sometimes a risk that those of us in the European tradition particularly sort of think about reading and writing in the ancient world on a continuum with the medieval era, and it just isn't. Um... Because if you think about it, there's kind of, like, it's easy to see the amount of, like, writing and the amount of literacy as, like, on a decrease the further back in time you get. Like, obviously, you know, pre the printing press, there were much fewer written works, fewer people could read and write. And the further you go back, there's, like, like, for early British history, there's, like, absolutely, like, nothing. Like, once the Romans leave... You've got to go 400 years till you get Bede and the ecclesiastical history. And there's just, like, these odd scraps, like the, the um, Irish annals or the Pictish king lists. But, like, our history of, like, four, five, six hundred 600 AD in Britain is based on archaeology, it's speculative, it's based on later sources who may or may not have any idea what happened 200 years before, you know... Um, and if you project that decline back into the ancient world, I think you're in, you're in danger of missing just how com 
not comparative to us, but comparative to medieval Europe, how literate the ancient world was. Now, no one really knows, there's no survey, but people have thrown around numbers like maybe 15% of the population were literate, very, very low by our standards, very, very high by, like, medieval standards, and the reasons for this are economic and structural, and to do with just, like, technology, actually. In the ancient world, well, in the place we're talking about, and in the Roman Empire and the Greek-speaking world, most documents that were written were written on papyrus. You go back a bit further to the ancient Near East, they're writing on clay tablets, but needn't, needn't deal with that. Papyrus is quite cheap, and it's quite easy to mass-produce. It's made in Egypt, and so the Egyptians have been writing on this forever. And essentially, you just, like, break up reeds, soak them, smash them together, like, almost, like, weave them together, and then put a weight on top of them. And then you've got to leave them for a bit, but, like, you can do... You know, they had almost like papyrus factories, because you can do hundreds, thousands of pages at once. And then yeah, you just leave them to sort of set in the sun, and you have a sort of paper, right? Um, not only that, but the ancient attitude towards teaching the lower orders to read and write was not the same as the medieval attitude. Medieval feudal lords were pretty scared of the masses learning to read or write. People feared the printing press when it came along. Ancients taught their slaves to read and write. And you can see why, because slaves in those days took on a much greater range of economic functions than, say, medieval serfs would have done. Medieval serfs farm the land. And, where you know, there was slavery in, um, you know, the transatlantic slave trade or whatever. It was limited, with some exceptions, but limited to quite specific functions. The Romans had slaves doing everything. You know, the Roman emperors had slaves running the imperial household. Right now, most slaves would have been treated horribly, and most slaves wouldn't be able to read or write. But it was perfectly normal, indeed the standard practice, to have like an overseer class of slaves who would manage the household accounts and like do the finances and take care of your correspondence. So for which they had to be literate, right? And in the medieval world, particularly the early sort of almost like pre-medieval period, it was really just the monks who preserved reading and writing. There was a tiny group of people who could do it, and these were people who lived in monasteries that had to be supported by large estates. And so they were necessarily very few in number. Um, and, like, quite high-status members of society who, like, the cost of carrying a monk and supporting them from, the, like, all the local farms who have to support them is quite high. Um, so the cost of having someone write something out is quite high. Whereas in the ancient world, they would have, like, you know, like, almost like printing presses, where you just have, like, hundreds of slaves who the cost of keeping is just the cost of feeding them, essentially, um, churning out manuscript after manuscript. And ancient authors really 
some of them are really complain about how, like, in modern days, like how many trash paperbacks are on the market. They're annoyed by how much literacy <laughs> there is. And what happens with the fall of Rome? is that Rome has all these trade networks across the Mediterranean, so papyrus that's being mass-produced in Egypt is shipped everywhere. That goes down. The type of urban economy, where you have large groups of people in cities and lots of specialised professions, which is generative of larger-scale literacy, that ends. Rome, at its height, has about a million people in it. You won't see a Western city have that population until London in, like, the late 1800s. Like, that sort of urbanisation just goes. And the technology goes. So now you have to write on parchment. Parchment is exponentially more expensive to produce. Um, because parchment, it, I think properly you'd call it vellum. It's treated animal skin. This is way more expensive than reeds. Like, all these lovely sort of medieval tomes with the wonderful illustrations and so on, these are all on treated animal skins. To make a full Bible, you'll be going through a herd of, like, 600 animals. It's incidentally pure aside why we talk about the spine of a book. That's where the spine of the animal was right? It's very labor, specialised labour-intensive to produce, and incredibly costly. So for, like, these structural, technological, economic reasons, you can't compare the ancient world to the Middle Ages. Obviously, you can't compare it to the present day, where we have emails and internet. But it's, it's in some ways more like us than it is like the medieval period. Um... And here's something to, like, put it all in context. So, like, what's the cost of a book, right? In the medieval period, you have to have something that takes the slaughter and specialised treatment of herds of animals written up. And by the way, writing, the way they wrote on parchment in the Middle Ages, takes about four times as long as the calligraphy style that they would write ancient Greek in takes one person, of which there's a tiny number in society, very specialised, has a large economic cost to produce this thing, right? Um, in the ancient world, you've got a mass-produced material that can be then be copied and copied and copied by almost like factories of slaves, and you've got 15%, maybe, of the population who are reading and writing and sending stuff to each other. So... Modern analogies in terms of money are misleading, but here's one that really stuck in my head. To produce a full Bible, pre-paper, pre-printing press, pre-mass literacy in the medieval era, the cost of that Bible would be about the same as the cost of a large middle-class house. Absolutely mind-blowing, right? Even in like places like Antwerp, which were the centres of book production, they were maybe making a few hundred books a year, right? Just category difference from the ancient world. Um, now, a book in the ancient world would still be more expensive, but it, it, as a an rough analogy, it might be something a bit more like a tablet or a smartphone. A lot of people could get them. More expensive than a modern book, certainly. But you wouldn't have to be... You'd have to be upper class. 
but you wouldn't have to be the wealthiest of the wealthy to have like a large library. And we know that lots of sort of middling Romans had large libraries, right? And in, in the medieval world, there was like five large libraries in all of Christendom, right? And so all of that is to say, the ancient world is a much more literate environment. There are far, 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 far more texts being produced in the ancient world, and more people have access to them, and more people can read them. So I think, you know, we want to correctly stress that the number of texts and the amount of literacy in the ancient world was a lot less than it is today, but I think we can overstress it. And in the European tradition, people walk away thinking that it was like the Dark Ages or something. It just wasn't. Um, now, bringing that back to Luke, I think that does give us a bit of context to think about what he's saying about the authorship and to, to, to also just think about who it was who was writing these things. So, again, I said, I think many means many. Um... There's no prima facie reason why it couldn't have been many. You can't just say, oh, well, these weren't as well-off people and most of them wouldn't have been able to read or write. So, you know, when he says many, there might be one other text that he has or something. It could be 12 because there must have been, at a minimum, a few hundred other Christians in the world. And we sort of know that because we know that from Paul's letters particularly, all these different house churches and what each had maybe a dozen people in, and you sort of add the numbers up. But there could be more than that. I think probably by this point that it must have been, I think it would have been in like the thousands at least. Um, we know, I've covered this in detail, that a lot of these people were merchants, traders, freedmen, not the wealthiest of the wealthy, but... You know, there would have been at least 15% literacy within these churches. Um, just, which is just to say, they, they, they would have at least, I think, been representative of the society as a whole. I think actually probably a bit more affluent. But again, not like, the, there weren't any Roman senators at this point or anything who were Christians. Um, and so, you'd have at least a few dozen people, maybe even a few hundred people spread across the Eastern Roman Empire who could read and write, who were in the business of doing that, and, and, and would be able to afford to buy parchment. So, yeah, many could well mean many. And what I just said there ties that into who was writing this. I went, I, I did a real breakdown of this in my political apocalypticism episode, um, but actually that's the other thing that falls out of the introduction to Luke, is it kind of gives us a bit of context as to who's doing this writing. Because one question you can ask when we're thinking about dating and authorship is, what even is this we're looking at? What genre of writing is this? I mentioned that at the beginning. First pass is scripture, but it doesn't look a lot like a lot of the scripture that we have. Another answer would, the, would be that these are bioi, which is a Roman category of writing etymologically and loosely related to the idea of a biography, but a bit different. One thing you can look at with Luke's introduction is bioi would 
generally have a preface where there would be a dedication to, you know, some patron or something like that, and they'd introduce the material. And so that sort of fits, right? You can say, oh, this is a bioi. This is like the preface to a bioi. Except this looks nothing like any preface we have to any bioi. The prefaces are much longer, they praise the virtues of their patron much more, and they introduce the material in much more detail. What it does look like is the preface to instruction manuals. That's a bit of a weird thought, right? But there's lots of documents in the ancient world, of which we probably have only the tiniest minority now, that are sort of like, this is how you build a bridge, this is how you irrigate, irrigate crops, this is how you perform surgery, right? Sort of upper working class professions. You know, like an engineer or a surgeon today would be like an upper class profession. In the ancient world, think more like skilled manual labour, right? But these people would, by and large, have been literate. And they would write up instruction manuals for, like, how to do the stuff that they needed to do. And their introductions tended to be a lot shorter, a lot more terse, and look a lot more like the introduction to Luke. And Luke was, according to a tradition, a doctor, which again, thinks skilled manual labour more than high-status profession. But that, that may not be historically true, but it fits, it lines up. So do I think the author of Luke Acts was writing what he thought was like an engineering manual. No, 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 not at all. Um, I think what probably happened is this is someone who's like sort of upper working class, who's literate, um, but isn't like super, they've not read Horace and they're not like familiar with like high literature, as it were. They're familiar with the scriptures, the, the Hebrew, the, the, you know, the Jewish scriptures. They're familiar with other accounts of Jesus's life, and they're familiar with what they do in their day job, some sort of skilled manual labour. And they don't know the correct form for writing a bioi, so they write the type of preface that they're used to doing when they see and read trade manuals in their reg regular job. I guess, but that's what I think happened there. So let's pull that together with the dating that we've done so far, and try to pull that into a narrative of sort of what we think is happening here. This is a guess. It's a construction. We don't have access to the original individuals. I don't think we have access to the majority of texts that were being produced at this time. But let's sort of pull it together. What's happened? There was a guy called Jesus, who was executed by the Romans. We'll put that at 30. I think that happened based on the sort of arguments I've given you about it's much more plausible that these stories came about of people writing around that fact than just inventing something whole cloth. Pretty soon after his death, people became convinced in a surprising way, and I've covered this much more extensively elsewhere, that he had been resurrected. And they began to spread a new doctrine based on his life, based on his death, 
and based on apocalyptic prophecy using two features of the world which I've covered. That this was a world that around the Mediterranean was interconnected by trade routes and there was lots of travel. And this was a world with a reasonable, comparative to say medieval times or much earlier history, a reasonable amount of literacy. So you had people hopping around the Mediterranean, of which we have a first-hand source, Paul, going from city to city and converting people to something, right? Maybe even converting is the wrong word, but bringing them into this movement. And they were doing so from the beginning. This was a movement based around texts. From the beginning, Paul was like holding his churches together and theologizing and legislating almost on the fly, like dealing with problems as they came up through letter writing, which might not have been the norm in ancient religion. But this is a movement that from the beginning has texts as a central part of it. These texts begin to codify. Paul doesn't include a great amount of biographical detail um, about Jesus' life, but other texts might of this idea that there was an eyewitness, you know, Peter going around telling stories, and a translator he has starts making notes and taking them down. That, that exact story with those exact people, who knows? But something like that may have happened. These stories may be historical, they may not be. People may be recording the authentic traditions of eyewitnesses. They may be recording the distorted traditions of eyewitnesses. They may be recording stuff that has just kind of been made up. But it's accumulation of texts from the beginning. But it's not a big movement. Like I say, maybe a few hundred, maybe a few thousand people. Then what happens is you get the destruction of the temple. And suddenly, this is something everyone in the world is trying to make sense of. Obviously incredibly horrific and traumatising for the people involved in it. And this is when that selection process happens that I talked about, of like if you ask a thousand people to make some prophecies, some of them are going to turn out to be right, and then those are the ones we pay attention to. And that proves the impetus to start writing the Gospels as we know them. There may have been earlier Gospels, I think there probably were in fact, but they probably looked quite different. They probably didn't centre the temple as much as the ones we have now. Paul is definitely apocalyptic, he definitely knows about the temple and thinks it's important, but the, the whole prophecies about destruction of the temple aren't central to Paul at all, right? Destruction of the temple happens, some dude, let's call him Mark, probably wasn't his name, pulls together what he has, he writes something that's quite rough and ready, and is like, it's go time, guys. This is it. Right? A bit later, you get someone else who tells us they have access to a bunch of earlier texts. There's probably loads of these floating around. And writes a very similar story but ten years later, say, in which he has to 
like I say, put a buffer zone in. Like, yeah, the destruction of the temple's important. Yeah, Jesus definitely called it. Definitely called it. But, you know, it won't, it won't be quite now. It won't be quite now. And that person pulls on all sorts of things and also goes on to write a sort of second volume in which he discusses the history of the early church. Probably not 100% accurately. There's a tradition that Luke was a companion of Paul, but Luke gets says all sorts of things about Paul's travels that contradict what Paul himself says, and says all sorts of things about Paul's theology that Paul contradicts. So that's a separate argument. I don't think Luke personally knew Paul. I don't think most people who study it do. I know Dale Martin doesn't. Um, but that's your, like, history of, like, how we got to this point. And I sort of skipped this, but Matthew, very similar story to Luke. Um, Matthew, very... The, the arguments we gave for Luke could almost all be made for Matthew, so maybe Matthew's similar sort of time, around 80. John doesn't include the same amount of apocalypticism. It's more cleaned up. It shows a much greater influence from Greco-Roman thought. And it doesn't include the thing about, like, within within the lifetime of some people this will happen. So John's later still, 90, 100, something like that. Hang on, though. Here's, you must have thought this while I'm saying this. If Mark is 70, Luke is 80, and Luke is telling us that he's working from other sources, what's the very natural question that crops up in your mind there? While you're pondering that question, let's just have a think about the texts that we just read. Both Mark and Luke have a prediction of the destruction of the temple. Now, I focused on the differences. Luke doesn't include the abomination of desolation. He says instead armies will surround Jerusalem. And he also has this line about the time of the Gentiles. So those bits are different. But the rest was very similar, right? Like, absolutely similar. Like, actually, if you put the original Greek next to each other, word for word, similar. Now... You might want to take a break point or something, this one is going on, but now we get to one of the really hard results. Because so far I've been saying, look, this is the text, what do you think? This is what people think, this is what I think, but it's all just sort of a judgement call. And you, you know, you can say, well look, maybe that's as good as we can do. If you're working from anonymous texts that tell you nothing about their dating and virtually nothing about their authorship, all you could ever really hope for is kind of a balance of probabilities type thing. It's it's all just a bit wishy-washy at the end of the day. But now we get to one of the results of textual criticism, one of the most famous results of textual criticism, that I would argue, most scholars would argue, is not a balance of probabilities thing. It's a beyond reasonable doubt thing. It's one of the things I think we can know about authorship and dating in this period most concretely, most certainly. And it proceeds from 
nothing more than a careful line-by-line -line reading of the text. Welcome to the synoptic problem. So, I think this one is really cool. And again, I'm going to try and talk you through the problem and the data rather than just say this is this is um, what what most scholars believe. I'm not going to be able to cover all of it because there's a huge amount of data for this one, but I'm going to try and give you the outline of the arguments. And then there are, if you want to go into the synoptic problem, there's a lot of like lectures on this online. Um, what, what does that mean, first of all? Synop what's synoptic and why is it a problem? Synoptic just means same. Here's the issue. What I just showed you between Mark and Luke, where you have really close agreement between those two texts is the case for big chunks, big, big chunks of Mark, Luke, and Matthew. Not only do they tell the same stories, not only do they tell them in the same ways, but if you put the original Greek text of those stories next to each other, you'll notice that for long stretches, they're word for word. You get, to, to use a slightly technical term, I think this is, I'm getting this from Ian Mills' lectures on it, high strings of verbatim agreement, 20, 30, 40 words in a row that are exactly the same. There's 661 verses in the Gospel of Mark. Of those, 600 are also in the Gospel of Matthew. These basically cannot be independent works. If, if the analogy of there's a car crash and there's four different witnesses giving their own recollection, if I asked two people to independently tell me about something that happened yesterday, you know, like, let's say four people had the misfortune of having to listen to all of this podcast, and I asked them, okay, tell me what your main takeaways were. How much of a verbatim agreement would you get? Maybe if there was a particularly memorable thing I'd said, people might be able to quote that exactly. But not just like the quotations, but stuff like editorial interjections, stuff like let the reader understand, are verbatim agreement. So not only have I got four different people giving me verbatim the same thing, but they're all saying verbatim, oh, and this was my favourite bit, in the same language. Not only that, but they're reporting on what I've said in a different language to the one in which I'm saying it. Jesus spoke Aramaic, the Gospels are written in Greek. The fact, incidentally, that they're written in Greek doesn't tell us a huge amount. Greek was kind of the lingua franca, so that doesn't mean that these couldn't have been people who knew Jesus. We think that for other reasons. It's really not possible. Th these repeated instances of verbatim agreement. There's a lot that's common to all three that's called triple tradition, and then there's a certain amount that's just common to Luke and Matthew, and that's called double tradition. And I mean, just for this, I'll just focus on the, the triple tradition. Put it this way. 
if the two bits I read you about the destruction of the temple, if you're a college professor and you're marking two essays that show that degree of verbatim agreement, you would immediately flag that up for plagiarism, right? Now, plagiarism's maybe a bit of a loaded word, it's debatable <laughs> if ancient authors thought about it the same way. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. For our purposes, it's enough to say that somebody is copying somebody. They have to be. Like, it, it, and it's not just that there's the odd stretch of verbatim agreement. Like, most of these Gospels ha are verbatim agreeing with each other, but in different ways and with changes. Right? So, who's copying who? Now, I've already given you a pretty big hint, right, in <laughs> that I, I've said, we, here's our reasons for thinking Mark comes first, Luke comes second, and Luke tells us he's using other sources. So it's pretty intuitive to say, well, it would kind of make sense to say that Luke is copying Matthew, and so Luke is copying Mark, and you can just see that in the text. You just, just imagine this, Luke, it wouldn't be like you've got a computer or anything, he's got one scroll in front of him that he's sort of reading from, and then he's writing on a different scroll, or maybe even he's reading from this scroll aloud, and a scribe is taking dictation. So he's reading through, and he's copying word for word, with like minor grammatical changes, phrasing changes, but a lot of it is just going in. Gets to the bit about the, 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 the abomination, that comes out, armies of Jerusalem comes in, goes back into verbatim agreement, and then adds on a bit at the end about the time of the Gentiles. You can... If you know that Luke is later, you can just see the copy edit in the text, right? What's cool about the synoptic problem, though, is you don't have to rely on that, right? Like, with context, you know that makes sense that it's Luke who's making those changes. But the synoptic problem is so rock-solid, really, as a proposition, at least Markian priority is so rock-solid, there's some bits of it that are contentious, that you don't need to. You can do this from first principles. I'll cover a bit quite fast, but I'll link when I put this up to resources if you really want to go through it. It's pretty incontrovertible that someone was copying someone. You just don't get that level of verbatim agreement from independent sources writing in a different language. Like, this is literally what plagiarism software does. It checks for verbatim agreement, right? This would instantly flag. Any individual story in the synoptics would instantly flag for plagiarism, much less all of them combined, or almost all of them, right? So someone's copying someone. Who's copying who? Well, you've got all sorts of possibilities. Maybe... Luke's copying Mark, as we've been talking about. Maybe they're both copying Matthew. Maybe Matthew's copying... You know, you know what I mean? On a first pass, it could be anyway. There's reasons to focus on Mark first, and that is... It gets called Mark as the middle term, which is sort of to say that Mark is like the common denominator. When all three are telling the same story, Mark's the common denominator between Luke and Matthew. 
So in other words, it's quite rare. You'll see changes between Mark and Luke, or Mark and Matthew, agreeing against each other, but you very rarely see them make the same changes to Mark. So that really gives you one of two conclusions. Matthew and Luke are copying out of Mark, or Mark is copying out of Matthew and Luke. Those are sort of your two options. And once you start to fill in the data, not only will it become clear which one that is, but it will sort of rule everything else out anyway. So the middle term stuff, if you didn't follow that, that you don't need to. Once you get all the data in, so how would you do this? This, I think, once you wrap your head around it, it feels so cool. Um, because it's like, actually, it's not that hard. Like, there's a lot to go through. We're talking about line-by-line -line readings of almost the entire New Testament. I'm literally going to give you one example. Right, just one. But once you sort of get it, it's like, yeah, that makes so much sense. And it's like, once you internalise the argument, you're not saying it because, oh, this is what the majority of scholars believe. Like, you get it. Like, it's absolutely convincing. So I'm going to read you two passages that have a high string of verbatim agreement. I'm not going to tell you which Gospels they come from. And I want you to just, you tell me who was copying from who. I'm not even going to give you the principle of why people think one was later. And almost just on this one alone, you can kind of just get the ordering. So here's passage one. I'm just going to call them passage one and two for now. They're both the story of Jesus being rejected at Nazareth. Passage one, quote, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour, except in his own town, and among his relatives, and among his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. And he went among the villagers teaching. End quote. So that's seven lines from, let's just call it, source one. Now, let's say, look at the same story in a different gospel. And let's call this gospel source two. So I'm not going to tell you which ones they are. And let's see if you can get it. Quote, And when Jesus finished there, these parables, he went away, and coming to his own town, he taught in their synagogue, and they were astonished, and they said, Where did this man get these wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is it not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honour, except in his hometown, and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. End quote. 
So okay, source one, source two. They're clearly copying each other, right? It's verbatim the same. Like, there's a slight difference about which members of the household are named. That's not important, I'll tell you that right now. I'll tell you that for free. They always used to say that in the north of England. I'll tell you that for free. I'll put your money away. You, Anyway. But it's, it's the same, right? Someone's, again, if this went through a plagiarism software, it would set it off, right? Like, if you were quoting that closely in modern academic norms, you would have to put a block quotation in and cite, right? Now, maybe the norms were different then, whatever. Again, for our purposes, it's enough. Definitely a literary dependence. Um, maybe they're both just working from, like, some third source. That is technically possible still at this point. I, I think the change gives it away, though. Did you catch the change? In source one, Jesus could do no mighty works there. Sometimes it's translated as deed of power. Um, but he can't do any big miracles there in source one. In source two, a single word changes. And I think this single word's enough to get who's copying who. In source two... Jesus doesn't do any mighty works there. Okay, who's copying who? And I'll give you a clue here. Try it both ways. Did someone change Jesus couldn't perform any miracles to Jesus didn't? Or did someone change Jesus didn't perform any miracles to Jesus couldn't? I assume you... I, I don't know. Let me know. I'll be super curious. Let me know if you got it. And again, the got it assumes there's a right answer out there. This is all just our judgments based on the texts. But what almost everyone thinks is if you're a Christian writing about Jesus, the word couldn't might make you feel a bit uncomfortable there. Jesus wasn't able to perform miracles... Now, there's all sorts of ways you can sort of explain away that, and he's still the son of God or whatever, but you're a Christian, you're copying word for word. Jesus couldn't do anything? Let's just, let's just change that to Jesus didn't do anything. You're not, you're not really falsifying the text, you're still preserving the direct quotations. Let's just change that to didn't. So, source one's Mark, source two's Matthew. Right? Now, I'd say just on that instance, you've got like a balance of probabilities. Best guess that Matthew is copying out of Mark and making revisions. But if you had other ones where it seemed like it was looking the other way, it would be like, who knows? It's not. What I've just pointed out is a consistent feature of Luke and Matthew's revisions to Mark, which is you go from a h lower to a higher Christology, which is simply to say they edit Mark so as to make Jesus more powerful. And all of these changes only go one way. You never get an instance where Jesus, you've got the same passage, but Jesus is less powerful in Luke than he is in Mark. So what makes more sense? A Christian who believes in this and wants other people to believe in it, kind of beefing Jesus up, so to speak. Or one, what sense would it make for a Christian who believes in this 
to come across Jesus chose not to do any miracles and think, no, that really needs a change. Let's make it that he couldn't do any miracles. You could come up with an explanation, but you'd have to come up with... It would be much more challenging to come up with an explanation there. And it's not just that. Consistently, Luke and Matthew correct spelling and grammar mistakes that they find in Mark. Again, what's more likely here? It's not impossible that a transcriber will introduce spelling and grammar mistakes to a text that wasn't originally It's not impossible, but it only happens one way. And particularly when you factor in that Matthew and Luke both have much bigger vocabularies than Mark does. They both appear a bit more educated. I said earlier it's like 15% of the society, but it's probably on a spectrum, right, from someone who can quickly tally up the household accounts to someone who's deeply schooled in Horace or something, right? They're all on that spectrum, but Luke and Matthew are probably, like, a bit further down. Mark is a bit... Um, Mark's a bit simple, right? He doesn't have a big vocabulary. He uses the same words over and over and over again, and he makes spelling and grammar errors. Um, and Matthew and Luke clean that up. They also consistently clean up inaccuracies in scriptural citations and in geography. So there's bits in Mark where he's citing Old Testament scripture, but he gets a detail wrong, like he gets the name of a particular king wrong, and Luke and Matthew spot this and change it. Now, again, it is not impossible that, that someone would be introducing those errors to a text that doesn't already have them. Um, but think about it the other way round. If you're copying a text that has a bigger vocabulary than yours, you'd sort of just preserve that vocabulary, right? Instead of consistently dumbing it down to the same for, like, like Mark, as I said, always, everything's immediately this, immediately this, immediately this. He's taken, if he's copying, he's taken a text that has a bigger vocabulary than his, and he hasn't copied it word for word. He's translated it back into his own vocabulary. He's introduced spelling and grammar errors where none exist. And he's made Jesus less powerful. And again, these all only go in one direction, and there's, this is why we can be so certain. There's hundreds of them. Hundreds of them. And it's like any one, you know, it might be like, well, that's just sort of chance. You know, it could be this, it could be that, it's, it's sort of a judgment call, but it's a bit like if you keep flipping a coin and you get five heads in a row. Yeah, that, that could be a fluke. You get 20 heads, 100 heads in a row. At some point, you're like, okay, this isn't a fair coin. Some trick's being played on me here, right? At some point, it just becomes too implausible. And it's not just that. Mark has no birth stories, no virgin birth, no resurrection appearances, no Sermon on the Mount. What makes more sense? Mark is earlier, he's writing with what he has, and he includes that. Luke is writing, as he tells us, with a large number of sources, of which one is Mark, 
but one, or multiple, I think, have other stuff that's not in Mark. And so he adds it in. Surely it makes more sense for Luke to be pulling from Mark, but also pulling from other stuff and including it, than to think that Mark found a story that had a virgin birth and resurrection appearances in, and thought, eh, eh, that that's not important. What's really important is this one story about a naked dude running away. That's the one bit in, in Mark that doesn't appear in Matthew or Luke, is uh, at Gethsemane, someone gets stripped of their clothes and runs away naked. On the thesis that Matthew and Luke are copying out of Mark, they just thought this particular story was a bit weird and they didn't need to include it. Total Makes total sense. On the thesis that Mark was copying out of Matthew and Luke, he didn't think the virgin birth was important enough to go in, didn't think resurrection appearances were important enough in, didn't think the Sermon on the Mount was important enough to get in, but really felt quite strongly that Luke and Matthew had messed up by not getting this story in of some random naked dude running away. What is more likely? Right? It's not only that. <laughs> um, the counter-thesis would have Luke, would have Mark, sorry, behaving like almost no writer in the ancient world does. In that, on the thesis that Luke is copying out of Mark, you can see where he's lifting from. Now, it doesn't, it's not the same all the way through. The stories appear in a slightly different order in Luke, but you can see a big chunk, like half a chapter, a whole chapter, where it just follows Mark. Often word for word, sometimes with changes, but it's the same thing. He clearly has a text in front of him, and he's just going through making the odd change, but basically copying out, right? And then there'll be a pause, there'll be some other material that Luke's probably getting from one of his other sources, and then we're back into Mark again. Makes total sense. If Mark has Matthew and Luke in front of him, and he'd have to have both of them, he's micro-conflating, which is to say he's taking a few words from Matthew, a few words from Mark, sorry, a few words from Matthew, a few words from Luke, then back to Matthew again, to back to Luke again. We kind of write that way now when we have computers and we can go back and we can have multiple documents open at once. Nobody in the ancient world uses sources that way. And the reason's probably quite simple, is if you just think about what the physical act of writing was like back then, you wouldn't, like I say, have a desktop open with all sorts of different things open. You can copy and paste a little bit here, you can go back and edit. You'd probably just be writing a scroll on your knee, and you'd maybe have one other one open to check. Or you'd be reading aloud from a scroll, and a scribe would be taking dictation. So, Mark would not only on the thesis that he's copying out of Matthew and Luke, he'd not only have to be making Jesus consistently less powerful, he'd not only have to be introducing geographical and grammatical and scriptural errors where none otherwise existed, 
he'd not only have made the bizarre editorial decision to skip the virgin birth but include the naked dude running away, he'd be using sources in a way that is without precedent in the ancient world. And there's more! There's all sorts of techniques that have been brought to bear on this, things like editorial fatigue and so on, which is probably a little more complicated than I'm going to spend time on here, but it just stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks. Mark was first, and Matthew and Luke copied out of him. We can know that as certainly, I think, as anything we can know in this story. The complicated question and the one which there's still some disagreement on, is what's the relationship between Matthew and Luke? The most common thesis is they were written independently, but used a common document between them, which we call Q. This is just a hypothetical document to explain the passages which are common between Matthew and Luke, but aren't found in Mark. Or, more simply, some people say, um, so Mark Goodacre is probably one of the more famous proponents of this today. More simply, Luke just also had Matthew, right? So um, Luke sometimes working out of Mark. He's sometimes working out of this document, which is also dependent on Mark, but has some additional material. And so, I mean, that kind of makes sense, right? Where Luke goes to what seems to be the older version, but when there's stuff that that older version doesn't cover, he goes to, like, the revised version. Um, some people argue that there's reasons to think that Matthew and Luke were written independently, and so then you have to come up with this other document to explain them. That's probably the majority view. Um... I won't really get into all that here. What we can really, really know, I think, is that Mark's the first. John's nowhere in this, by the way. Um, John... People argue on if John knew the synoptics. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, Luke. And they're called the synoptics because they're the same. John doesn't have this, like, strong verbatim agreement. Um, John might have, but if he knew them, he knew them and, like, he's read them, it's factored into his thinking, but he's not copying them verbatim, right? Um, people have argued that both ways. It's not important to my story here. But isn't that a cool result? And I've sort of gone through it quite quickly, but it's the weight of cumulative evidence is overwhelming. Here's, here's like a metaphor for how I think this happened. And this is just a narrative I've constructed in my head. It's a modern analogue that's obviously anachronistic. But I think it's useful with these to think about it um, much more... Um, to actually get away from how we think about texts. Because one way of thinking about this is kind of like Mark is like Jesus' first edition and then... Luke and Matthew are second, third editions, like it's revisions, sort of. I think what happened, and again, this is this is speculation, is let's say Mark is written immediately before or immediately after the destruction of the temple, and it's quite a rushed job. Like he's he's like he's like like I say, I think the the impetus for Mark is like ah oh, shit, we're on, this is it. Right, let's get the word out, let's get the good news 
out. This horrible thing has happened, but the good news, the evangelium, the gospel, is that salvation is at hand and the Son of Man is coming back on the clouds. Let's get this good news out there. I think a lot of this was kind of invented on the fly. And he writes something, maybe like a few days, he just bashes this out. This is what I have, these are the traditions I have. And, you know, he called it, he called the destruction of the temple, he told us this meant the end of the world. Here's the good news, though, you can be saved. But, like, there's a sort of, the phrase that gets used about Mark is there's a brutish genius to him. He writes something that's incredibly powerful. And I think Mark is best read in one sitting. You can read it in about an hour. It has an incredible pace and pathos and drama to it. Um, but it is just, just in terms of the writing of it, it's a rushed job. He hasn't done a spell check. He hasn't done an accuracy check. And he's recorded some stuff that may very well be historical um, that has Jesus not being able to do things, you know? Um, and this, like, catches on. It's something that is read aloud in these assemblies that are being used. I don't think in this period what you're seeing is the documents that we end up getting are the ones that, like, the church fathers decided, you know, met the test of orthodoxy and they, they censored out the heretical gospels. There wasn't such a thing as orthodoxy at this point. I think it's like which ones proved popular, which took off, you know? And then a generation or so later, Matthew and Mark, Matthew and Luke, they know Mark, they've heard it in churches, but they're perhaps towards the more literate, educated end of the people in the, these, these things. They've also read it, and when they read it, they're sort of like, you know, I like this, but this bit here that's not quite right, you know? And so the analogy I would use is it's kind of a bit like a movie remake. Like, I don't think they were writing, like, to correct it or because they hated Mark. I think people remake movies because they like the movies and they want to put their spin on them, they want to improve them. If you think about, like, um, Peter Jackson remaking um, King Kong, you know, there's a lot of that that's, like, obviously dependent on the source material. You've got the scene at the end where he climbs the, the Empire State Building. It's almost, like, shot for shot the same, right? And I, the, the thought process behind that must be something like, I love this movie so much. I just sort of want to fix it up for a modern audience. I think that's a bit like what the relationship Matthew and Luke have to Mark is. They're doing a remake that, like, is pretty close, it replicates a lot of scenes, but just like with King Kong, they bring in some other stuff that isn't in the original because they think it'll improve it. And that, that's sort of how those Gospels come to be. John, John's kind of, like, one of those sequels that's a bit, like, embarrassed by its source material and is only, like, loosely dependent on it. But again, if you're going with the sequels analogy, you can have a sequel coming out, you know, 10, 20 years, or a remake of the movie, not that long after the, like, um, original movie. Another good analogy for this is video games. A lot of, like, the first era of video games, whether on the PS1 and they 
you know, the characters look like little origami models put through a really low-res filter. Um, people really liked those games, and those are only, what, like 15, 20 years old now? But they're like, oh man, like, we if we could do this again with modern graphics. And so you get something like the remakes of the Resident Evil games, where, again, there's a lot of stuff in there that isn't in the original, They've cleaned it up a lot and put it in modern graphics and with a modern you know, controller setup, but there's a lot that's like scene-for-scene -scene remakes. Have they remade Resident Evil 2 and 3? I think they're going to do 4. Um, like, the Raccoon City police station is it's, it's the same level, just cleaned up, you know? And they're, they're obviously remaking it because they like the original, and then you get remakes like the Tomb Raider remakes, you know, the Lara Croft games, where they're clearly a bit uncomfortable with the source material. Like, um, they had Rihanna Pratchett, uh, Terry Pratchett's daughter, talk about, like, what are you trying to, like, bring to the sequel? And it was all about, like, redoing it. It wasn't like, this is what I liked and I want to bring it forward in modern graphics. It was like, well, I was always just a bit awkward about, like, Lara Croft and, like, how sexualized her presentation was in media and she was treated like a sort of pin-up model. And I wanted to produce a version that didn't have any of that. Um, and if you play the modern Tomb Raider games, they don't have that close fidelity to the originals. There's, like, the key points are there. You've got an adventurer called Lara Croft. But there's not that sort of scene-for-scene -scene remaking of them, or, like, close allusions to it. They've brought a whole load of other stuff in from modern gaming, from, like, the Uncharted series and so on, and they're like, you know, we'll take the basic points here, but we'll just redo it in a modern way. That's John. John isn't going word for word. You know, he's not remaking the same scenes exactly. He knows the same basic story and the same basic detail. But he's like, let's take a whole load of sort of respectable Greco-Roman philosophy and import this in. So Jesus, who stands mute before Pilate in Mark, gives a whole very Roman, Greco-Roman, philosophic-sounding disputation on the nature of truth to Pilate in John. Right? So there you go, there you go. That's a sentence you were, the, the, like, this is what we've learned from this. Matthew and Luke are like Resident Evil, and John is like Tomb Raider. <laughs> okay. So There's sort of a serious point there, is that I said Rihanna Pratchett was the, she was the writer of, I think, the 2013 Tomb Raider remake, and when I saw her interviewed about it, was clearly a bit embarrassed by the source material she's working with. I think John's a bit embarrassed by the source material he's working with. There's no exorcisms in John. Mark is nothing but exorcisms. All this stuff about Jesus putting mud on people and spitting in their face to cure them, completely gone in John. So, this is much more of a judgment call. Um, it's not as like hard as the synoptic problem, Markian priority. But yeah, that like this puts John later. This puts John at a point, maybe even in like the second century, when the movement has become much more Hellenized, much more sort of integrated into a sort of Greco-Roman culture. But okay.
analogies to classic video games aside, do, does that literary dependence tell us anything about authorship and dating? Can we plug that back into the picture that we've been building? Well, it tells us that Mark was first, right? And Matthew and Luke must have been a little bit afterwards. Um, but I think the fact of literary dependence also tells us that we don't know exactly who wrote these documents, but the apologist story that these are four different eyewitnesses to the same car crash, that's the one thing it couldn't have been, right? If you were an eyewitness, why would you be working word for word out of a different source? Not only that, but just how much sense does this make? You're an eyewitness. You start your book by saying, I'm not an eyewitness. I'm working out of another source. And then you proceed to do exactly that. Why would you do that? Why would you, in the case of Matthew, if this was Matthew the disciple, work out of a source that includes the introduction to the character of Matthew? Matthew, when he's talking about Matthew, is copying out of Mark. How much sense would that make? That doesn't necessarily mean that the Gospels couldn't be early, but they surely the one thing they can't be is eyewitnesses. Does the, the Markian priority that I gave you in the synoptic problem, how, how well does that mesh with the story I've told so far perfectly, right? We have internal reasons to for the Gospels themselves to date Mark at 70, Luke and Matthew, who knows, let's say 80. Yep, that makes perfect sense of the data. So is that when they're written? Is there any bits? Yep, loads, loads. There's loads of reasons to doubt that. I'll give you one early, one late. Um, one early is that Luke is also the author of Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles takes us through to the end of Paul's life, but it doesn't know how Paul dies. It doesn't include his death. Supposedly, according to later tradition, um, he was executed in Rome. Luke doesn't cover that. So does that mean, then, that Luke is unaware of that? Which means that he can't be writing much later than Paul's death. That's, yeah, that's an argument, and in which case Luke couldn't be later than mid to late 60s. Th there's an argument. You just have to hold that in your head versus all the other evidence that I've put forward. Could it be that the other stuff, the prophecy stuff that we've built on, all of the other context clues, our reading of that was wrong? Or could it be maybe Luke just chose not to include the death of Paul for whatever reason? I don't know. Make your own mind up. What's more likely? Could it be later? Yeah. Um, there's some evidence that Luke knew Josephus. And there's books Josephus wrote, really famous, about the Judean War and a later history. One of them would be fine. I think one of them came out in 79, but the other was in 94, 
right? And he uses... It's not a sort of strong textual dependence, like um, he has on Mark, but he uses similar turns of phrase. He talks about a particular character as the Egyptian in a way that Josephus does. So, yeah, I mean, if Luke's... That seems a common-sense argument, Luke knew Josephus. And if he knew the later work of Josephus, the one in 94, then, yeah, obviously it has to be post-94. Now, that would make the prediction about some of you here will live to see the, the coming of the kingdom of God, that would make that bit a little weird. But what's weirder? I'll go for the middle ground and say... Luke may have known Josephus, but if he did, he knew the works that were published in the late 70s. Maybe Luke is, like, early 80s, something like that. But, you know, Mark Goodacre thinks Luke was early 2nd uh, century on the basis of that. There's, there's no answer to this that doesn't have something that's a bit weird and something that doesn't fit with it. I'd say the best that we've got is kind of like a probability distribution, like a bell curve. Like in the middle, with the Gospels being, you know, something like 80 maybe for Matthew and Luke, I'd say it's like the middle of your bell curve there. That's like your most likely. But it could very easily have been a bit to either side of that. It's not totally impossible, like I've said, that it was like pre-fall of Jerusalem. But that's where the, the bell curve is getting really low and tapering close to the axis. And then that somehow, that like maybe it was actually written before the events that it's describing. It's not technically impossible, but that's like where the line is just asymptotal to the axis. It's just, it's few standard deviations out, right? I'd say that's the best that we've got. But, with all that said, I think we can have a certain amount of confidence in that. Confidence in the absence of certainty. And I think that's where just the thinking people bring to this text is just so alien to me. Because people want to say, well, if the Bible's not inerrant, then how can we trust any of this? That's just not how we think epistemically about anything. You know, I might read in a history textbook that um, when Abraham Lincoln dies in the hotel room after being shot in the theatre, someone standing nearby says he's with the angels now. I might read in another history book that someone says he's with the ages now. Totally plausible to me that people could have recorded two different traditions of, like, what you remember some person saying. I don't stop believing that Abraham Lincoln existed, right? And when you go this far back into the ancient world, you know, there's all sorts of stuff we can use to confirm Abraham Lincoln existed, but there's never going to be a moment that you can fact-check this, right? We're saying, oh, we think it was this, we think it was this, we think it was this. That's the wrong, really, way of phrasing it. What it was, what the historical Jesus was, what the actual process of authorship was here, is, is fundamentally lost to us. There's no answers at the back of the book here. All we have are judgments and arguments on the basis of the text themselves. That's all we can ever have. 
And so what we're really saying is I think this is the best rendition of the evidence and arguments, and it has to be judged according to that criteria. There's no point at which we can get back in the time machine and check it. There's not a, to, to use a, to use a, to use a common ac academic phrase, there's not a there there, right? But on the basis of all of that, you know, if you're going to say, was there a historical Jesus? Slightly the wrong question. But on the basis of, you know, the evidence and the arguments and everything we've looked at, I've said the apologist position that these were eyewitnesses. That's basically the one thing it can't be. I also think the idea that this is all just made up, really, like, that's a much, much, much less plausible reading of the evidence that we have. The arguments for it are, are much more strained. Um, I think, very clearly, what we're seeing in these texts is a process of innovation, not invention. It's not invented whole cloth, and that just isn't how these things work. What we're seeing is people grapple with the contradictions and failures of prophecy. And you're seeing evidence in real time of the revisions people are making to a written tradition to grapple with those failures and contradictions. You wouldn't make something up that had issues that you struggled to resolve. Most of all, you wouldn't make up an event of, like the crucifixion of the Messiah that you then had to write around. If you were inventing this, there was no expectation that the Messiah would suffer and be crucified and die. Now, you can read that back into the Old Testament. You can read that into the binding of Isaiah, or you can read the binding of Isaac, sorry, or the book of Isaiah and the Lamb, and Christians do that because, you know, the the authors of the Gospels themselves are sort of making these links. But prior to Jesus' execution, nobody was doing that. Nobody was reading the text in that way. That That's... Plus, you have Paul. Paul, who is a purported witness to the to the resurrection, but he's writing letters about, and that may well have been read by, and he's writing about his experiences with people who were eyewitnesses. So Paul adds to it. And I think, again, confidence in the absence of certainty. I think something like the story I've put together, we can be reasonably confident, not certain, you wouldn't bet your life on it, and I, I would expect, if there were a, a, a time machine to go back and check it, there would be details that are wrong, right? I wouldn't expect it to be foolproof. But it's not bad. And this is, this is sort of the point I want to make, is that sort of having confidence when there is no there there. We talk about the historical Jesus, but that is an abstraction. It's not, it doesn't exist. There's nothing to check it against. That's actually like a lot of stuff. And that's how we epistemically want to approach a lot of things. That's kind of one of my big takeaways from taking this. Now, you can go too far the other way. I've sort of given you a story. I think what you're looking at is the growth of a movement that has at its centre a textual tradition. And you can kind of see that, right? 
in these layers of revisions, and perhaps how, let me just suggest some ideas of my own while I'm at it, We talk, I've talked about what's the gospel and what genre was this. Maybe it is just kind of a new genre, but it didn't come about from somebody one time sitting down and thinking, I'm going to invent a gospel. It came about through layers and layers of, of, of textual additions and redactions. You know, someone maybe at one time, um, as we saw in the later tradition, you know, writes down some notes. Uh, again, reasonably literate world of someone who's talking. Someone else pulls them into something that's a bit more structured. Someone else, when the temple falls, gets a narrative of it. Someone else revises that narrative and adds stuff, right? And through the, those constant processes of textual, you, you end up with something that no one really would have designed that is kind of a new genre, right? But that no one person created. It's sort of layers and layers of texts. And maybe, just maybe, if you want a theological payoff to this, the process of who Jesus was and what he means and, like, you know, is he one part of a triune god or was the Messiah or any of that, we know that developed over the course of Christianity, but again, maybe it developed not as one person sitting down and saying, you know what I think, I think Jesus was X, Y, and Z. Maybe it just sort of accumulated like layers of sediment, of constant revisions of some nameless scribe seeing the word Jesus couldn't do a deed of power, feeling a bit uncomfortable and putting he couldn't do a deed of power. Something like that, maybe? I find that so, so plausible. But I said you can go too far. And here's the other thing you have to be sensitive to. I've got two payoffs. One is we can have confidence in the absence of certainty. I think we can be confident, not in absolute dates, but sort of the bell curve of probabilities that I mentioned. I think we can be confident not that Mark was written in 70, but that that, that is the most likely dating of it. Not that Luke and Matthew were written in 80, but that is sort of the centre of the spread of probabilities, and the further out you get from that, the less likely they become. I think we can be confident in that. The bigger stories that I've been telling, by putting it in the context of the ancient world, by theorising about how I think I, I went, those are things that feel right to me, but one thing Dale Martin once said to me that stayed with me is often what you have there is you've become comfortable with a construction of your own creation. You've become comfortable with a construction of your own creation. You've turned this story over and over in your mind so many times. You've found something that feels right to you and you've sort of shaved off the rough edges and it's settled in your head. But that really just tells you more about you than it does about the evidence. And again, I think that's true of a lot of things. Is, you know, when we're saying this is the sort of morally true theory or whatever, I think we can be confident in the absence of certainty. But I think also, at the same time, we often become comfortable with constructions of our own, of our own creation. Um, and that's sort of my takeaway. But, you know, as to why, why do this, why look at this, that's, that's what I've gained out of it and out of thinking about this. 
confidence in the absence of certainty, but also always being cautious about are you just becoming comfortable with the construction of, of your own creation. Um, and I'll close with that then. That's like my sort of answer for like, Toby, you're an atheist, why read scripture? You've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours on this at this point. Why? Well, I, I, won't, I don't really have an answer for Christians. That's up to you. I'm not here to tell you how to pray or anything like that. Um, going through the historical stuff, that might be interesting for you. Um, but I'm not going to say it compels you towards a particular point of view. For atheists, isn't it just interesting? Texts provide an opportunity to really think about what we can know and why. And also to think about how people actually think. Um, I've got so much, and seen my political apocalypticism episode, about how people pass on ideas, how people formulate views of the world from scripture. And in many ways, much more so, and it's given me fresh insights and fresh lenses on how ideas are actually passed on than I have for, like, theoretical accounts of how people behave. People who start with, you know, homo economicus or something like that, or historical materialism, both of which are useful and both of which I like, but you also can learn a lot from going to a completely different time and trying to really trace as accurately as you can in the midst of great epistemic uncertainty what actually seems to be happening here, because apocalypticism and prophecy are not unique to scripture. These are features in how we communicate politically now. I've talked about how apocalypticism is still very strong within political movements, and although the language is very different, the mechanics of it are the same. I think the same thing is true with prophecy. I think we look at people and we follow commentators like based on who gets the right calls, and everyone's always trying to say, I told you so. I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. I've said on this podcast before, like, oh, you know, I... I correctly predicted Trump and Brexit. That's true. Why am I saying that? What's going on there? Other than just a statement of fact. Well, because I'm trying to add authority to what I'm saying, right? So the, the mechanics of how prophecy works are still central and embedded in. And you can sort of get a handle on this, how it works, by thinking about how it presents in scripture, and just look for it. Once you've engaged with it properly, look for apocalypticism, look for prophecy, look at this constant process of revising and reinterpreting and redefining prophecies, and you'll see it everywhere in contemporary politics. And isn't that just kind of cool and interesting to think about? Um, nothing that I've said, though, is unique to scripture. Why not look at other texts? Why not look at Plato or Aristotle in this light? You can. Um, I do something called the history of... Um, I do the something... God, I know the name of my own podcast. Sorry, I've been recording for a while. I do something called the Political Philosophy Podcast. A big part of what I look at is the history of political thought. I think it has value, of, as I've always said, as a source of imagination, not as district, you know, conclusions. We're not going to implement philosopher kings or something, but as bringing new ways of seeing and interpreting the world to us. Scripture, I will just say this, has the advantage that it's the centre of a tradition. There's a huge amount been written on this, and you're not alone in thinking about it. The, the, the conclusions and the arguments I've given you 
are the cumulative work of a couple of hundred years of criticism of you know historical criticism of the new testament from you know, thousands and thousands of brilliant minds you are in an intellectual community that's sort of true for some texts like it, it's arguably true for plato aristotle something like that but not as much as this you have a depth of resources here whether you choose to believe in it or not and i've said many times i, I don't um i view jesus in the same sort of light as i would joseph smith or something like that right but because there is this tradition around it, and because there has been so much at stake here, and people have disagreed about it so fervently, every single view has been battle-tested over the centuries. And reading scripture properly like this, I think you get so much from... It's not like I... I get annoyed with the way scripture is used at me. It, people can do what they want with it, but when people try to convert me going like, oh, this one particular passage, if you really pray on it, I'm sure it'll mean something to you. No, it's like reading Plato. You've got to absorb the whole thing and you've got to think about it. I've spent God knows how long just on when the texts were written, right? We were at the, the, the foothills of engaging with these texts properly, right? And think about how much I've just spun out of that and got out of that. Scripture, in my mind, is no different from Plato. You want to hold it in your head. You want to learn it. And as the early rabbis said, it is not enough to read. You must take it and turn it over in your mind. Again and again and again and again. 